0: Hello! Happy Sunday, or whatever day it is you're listening to History of Westeros podcast. We're so glad you're here with us, and we're here to have fun talking about some more world-building as a springboard to what we might expect in the future of the series, understanding the material better, and just having a great time while we're at it. And Sean, what today have you placed in your cup of wonder, cup of random, cup of mystery, what's it got? I think
1: I have more different things mixed than normal. I've got the Protein Berry Naked Drink and the Rainbow Machine Naked Drink.
0: Rainbow, appropriate. It's Pride Month, yeah. Yes, yes.
1: And also Peach, Red Bull, and Watermelon Mountain Dew. And
0: I thought, I, I,
1: one of the Sparkling Ices, the Raspberry Sparkling That ice. is a lot yeah.
0: of things, man. That is like a yeah. half a dozen mm-hmm. things, which is appropriate for today because Lorath has a lot of different qualities, an unusual combination of traits, which Sean's drink also has. I don't know if there's many raspberries in Lorath. It's, it's a northern spot. So I, actually, I would say they definitely don't have raspberries there. But they, they probably have the occasional rainbow and other fruits, perhaps. Shout out to our friend Nina for her notes. Always invaluable, always very helpful. Check out her blog at goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's one L and Allie. Latest blog post, she got a question wondering about if Viserys, as in the Viserys I from Dance of the Dragons fame, had followed through with his Rhaenyra Prince of Dorne marriage plan. Would that have worked out? I suggest you check it out to find out the answer. As always, you can ask questions live or ahead of time. Join the discussion on Facebook, History of Westeros Facebook group, or on Discord. Lots of good discussions happening on both. And we got some news this week, didn't we?
2: Yeah, we sure did. Aziz and I got confirmation yesterday that we will be doing a panel at San Diego Comic-Con this year on Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon. This is a fan panel with um, Amin from a podcast of Ice and Fire and Tara of Ice and Fire Con and Geek Saga. And so that's pretty cool because George R. R. Martin will be in attendance at San Diego Comic Con this year. And there should be a rather sizable House of the Dragon presence as well. So if you're in the San Diego area or California and want to come out and have a little meetup, we could certainly do one off campus that, that is not part of Comic Con. But you could also come to our panel when the date is announced. So yeah. uh, please let us know about that.
0: Yeah, we'll let you know once we get more detail. And it's pretty exciting. And this just like, like Shaya said, we just found out this week. So that's good that that worked out for us. Let's have a trivia question, shall we? The question is, related to wonders of the world, both natural and unnatural. Well, really, <laughs> unnatural meaning man-made. <laughs> that would actually be a really good category, like unnatural, the, like the sorrows and the, the shadow lands and the doom of Valyria, just things that aren't quite right that are probably magical or definitely magical in some cases. But that isn't the question we have today. Let me stay on topic here. The question is, which region or place or city, which place has two wonders of the world, according to Lomas Longstrider. Answer, as usual, at the end.
1: Would you, Aziz, would you count in this world of Martin's dragons as unnatural?
0: Well, that's a good question. I think I would, yes. I think they are too fantastical to be not unnatural. <laughs> I mean, to be, yeah to, yeah, to be not unnatural. Especially
1: because they've been gone for a while, although relatively short while in the, you know, the history of this world. Historical, so, if, yeah. If dinosaurs were brought back, and this, you know, if scientists use the genes and splice them up and suddenly this is that unnatural? If dinosaurs were real, they're not fantastic, really, but for it's them to true. exist now, it is so.
0: Yeah, I, I think arguably bringing something back that went extinct is unnatural, but I guess it depends on your definition of natural. Yeah. I I would say yes. If we have a real-life Jurassic Park, I'm going to go ahead and call that unnatural. (laughs) That doesn't mean I don't want it, though, because, you know, I want to see a dinosaur or two in a cage (laughs) where it can't get to anyone. (laughs) You know, I don't want them out there, you know, just roaming the neighborhood. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust. Ew,
2: ew. Sadness is in the house! Oh no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions.
0: Disney (laughs) and Pixar's Inside Out 2.
2: There's a part 2? We're going!
0: Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Lorath. Let's talk Lorath. It possesses many of the great qualities you want in a fantasy city. Mysterious ancient architecture, bizarrely unique customs, a weird god, supernatural legends and creatures, and a connection to dragon lords. You know, that's always fun. This would make a particularly excellent... Role-playing setting is either a basis or a place to adventure in. I think
1: I even wondered as I was reading about it if that's what it was. <laughs> if it was some piece of a role-playing adventure, Martin or some group of his friends oh. had had that he incorporated into the world. It
0: seems so well set up Th- for it. That's a great theory. Like I, I obviously it occurred to me that it would work as that, but didn't occur to me that it was that and that that George borrowed it maybe his own role-playing or just ideas he's taken from role-playing. You know, it's like you know what I'm gonna. I'm gonna get some. I'm gonna borrow some from my D and D days. I'm sure that actually happens all over Westeros and Essos, but it feels like it's it's more concentrated here than and then in a lot of other places. By the same token, this episode is lighter than a lot of our World of Ice and Fire episodes on real world influences. You know, Valantis take for example has a lot in common with New Orleans. Bravos with Venice. Tyrosh with Tyre. Bear Island in Westeros is matched by what was it, 28 or 29 Bear Islands in the real world, plus several others that have bears that aren't called Bear Island. Those all matched up pretty well. castle Rock and the Rock of Gibraltar, the Wall and Hadrian's Wall, the Titan of Bravos and the Colossus of Rhodes. Of course, these aren't all one-to-one parallels, but they are very strong, influential starting points. And of course, these, when they, even when they are one-to-one parallels, they don't remotely tell the full story, but they're an anchor, a place to start. Lorath arguably doesn't really have a starting point like that. There's a couple of places we have suggested here that we'll get to in a minute that are similar, but they're, they're not overwhelming parallels. They're more like, yeah, this has some things in common with that. And that applies to the island itself and the people. So both things together and individually. So it will require a little more imagination on our parts, but hey, that's really fun. I like when we get to imagine more. It's, it's fitting with the role-playing element and all that, the high fantasy stuff maybe. It's kind of high and low, right? It's like high fantasy, but it's not, it's not like people casting lots of spells. It's still George's version of high fantasy where it's still maybe stuff happened, maybe mysterious things happen, but there still aren't like wizards and lightning bolts flying around. So we've got A few tidbits about mazes and labyrinths from the real world, though. Lower amount of real world stuff. There's definitely some, and that's going to reveal a few surprises and connections I think you all will enjoy. So let's get to it with our the place we often start, which is with first mentions. We'll begin with the first time it was mentioned at all, as usual. Danny 6, Game of Thrones, when she's asking Jorah Mormont to help her convince Drogo that he should invade Westeros. The night looked thoughtful. The call has never seen the Seven Kingdoms," he said. "They are
1: nothing to him. If he thinks of them at all, no doubt he thinks of islands, a few small cities clinging to rocks in the manner of Lorath or Lys, surrounded by stormy seas. The riches of the East must seem more—must seem more tempting prospect.
0: Yeah, I mean Drogo speaking of leading his Kalisark towards the lands of the Jade Sea, which may have originally been part of George's narrative plan to get Danny closer to Asshai. and That was also part of his plan. He was going to have her find her dragon eggs originally in the wilderness beyond Vase Dothrak. So, obviously he changed that. And Nina writes, and since the Dothraki avoid the poison water for religious-slash-cultural reasons because they distrust any water that horses can't drink, a call like Drogo might well see a place like Lorath as a place inhabited by say, bizarre barbarians. Who would voluntarily live in a place surrounded on all sides by poison water? Yeah, like from a Dothraki perspective, it would be a strange place oh. to live and a bizarre place to want to go because, yeah, he's not wrong. As Jorah says, it is pretty poor. I mean, Lisa isn't poor, but still, <laughs> the East is richer by far and uh, more relevantly, not across the water. So, yeah.
2: <laughs> I think it would be really interesting. Just, it's such a different choice to have Danny find her eggs in the wilderness. There's a lot of meaning behind how she got her eggs.
0: Yeah, it would have been kind of like, random just to find them. Yeah, I think it's much better than this gift is just so much more meaningful I and mean, with the lyrics. Yeah, I think it was a better choice and,
2: as well. I, I do. Yeah. Otherwise, it's more of like a MacGuffin kind of like thing where, like, yeah. oh, she found her magical eggs. Yeah. Like, like, I, it definitely makes a lot of sense, but it's also just interesting in terms of what it means for Danny as a character in terms of being given her eggs versus finding that And yeah. it just speaks a lot to her character as well. I wonder I
0: if George is going to have a dream. Like the voices lead her to them, mm. rather than just stumble on them by accident. Because well, it yeah, could I also know.
2: parallel them finding the dire wolves at the beginning of oh, Game of Thrones. Maybe it? that's
0: what he was aiming for. Yeah, yeah. a little parallel there. Good. So yeah, so you can see why Drogo wouldn't have been interested in Lor. He might not have been interested in, in a place like Lorath, even if it was attached to the mainland. Because yeah, it's just he's after glory and power and riches, and you don't really you don't really get that as a Dothraki call by attacking Lorath. You go after bigger targets. So what I think Lorath is placed in the narrative, its niche, is it's the remote, but not too remote, locale. It's not ashy. It's not super far away where you have to take ship and travel like a year or start there, like Danny, who then goes farther east, gradually getting there. So I think that's its role. It sounds really far away. It sounds remote. It sounds exotic, but it's not prohibitively so. It's in that sort of just on the cusp range. Now here's another quote, the first appearance of Lorath in the world of Ice and Fire. Now, since we'll eventually cover all nine free cities, we'll likely find this particular first mention of Lorath is also going to be the first mention of some of the other cities. So we'll probably hear this quote again at some point, but we'll, of course, deal with it differently. Here it is.
2: On the shores of Essos, the Valyrians raised cities, which we know today as the Free Cities. Their origins were diverse. Kohor and Norvos were founded following religious schisms. Others, such as Old Volantis and Lys, were trading colonies first and foremost, founded by wealthy merchants and nobles who purchased the right to rule themselves as clients of the freehold rather than subjects. These cities chose their own leaders rather than receiving archons dispatched from Valyria, often on dragonback, to oversee them. It is claimed in some histories that Pentos and Lora were of a third type, cities already extant before the Valyrians came, whose rulers paid homage to Valyria and thus retained their right to native rule. In these cities, what influx of Valyrian blood there was came from migrants from the freehold or political marriages used to better bind these cities to Valyria.
0: Right. It's not, there wasn't ever a lot of Valyrian people living in, in Lorath. There's got to be a few. It does business there. But as we've just explained, it probably not a lot of business because it's, not a wealthy place. There's not a, a ton of industries there that a, a super rich person would want to be involved in, especially given its distance from the Freehold. As we saw with the Freehold, the most powerful people like to keep close to it. And Lorath is pretty damn far. The exceptions like Lees and Volantis that did have a lot of actual Valerians living there in part because Leese was, you know, a party spot and Volantis was so close by. Those were, those were the reasons for that, whereas Lorath is neither of those things. So, the quote here goes on to say that the source for these claims about Pentos is questionable, given politics and other factors. There's no pushback against Lorath, though. No, one's, no one argues that Lorath isn't really as old as they claim. Pentos' claims are political. Lorath, nah. The evidence speaks for itself. For quite a few reasons, it's pretty indisputable. So Lorath might be the only one of the nine that existed before the Valyrians came, which gives it a little bit of additional unique quality. On the point of how it's remote, but not too remote, John actually thinks of sending Arya there. Now, he's actually thinking about fake Arya in this case, because he's heard that Stannis is going to send Arya to him. He, he thinks that Lorath or Ib might be safer. In other words, it's still not so remote that he can't you know find her later if need be. And especially compared to the wall, Lorath isn't super far from there. Again, it's he all thinks of
1: Bravos first, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he thinks Bravos would be good, but for for the same reasons it would be good, it would be bad. It's nearby,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but it's nearby. Yeah. Yes,
0: exactly. That's he's he's, he's go a little
1: farther that. out. Yeah, yes, but he
0: does, of course. It does end up being Bravos, but well, it doesn't because we don't know. He gets stabbed, and Arya fake Arya <laughs> isn't even there yet. But it appears to be the decision he's he was weighing. And that is ironic, because if he sends her to, if someone sends her to Bravos, then real Arya is there, but hey. She might run
1: into herself. Yeah, she might <laughs> run into herself. And, th- and of course,
0: those who know each other, Jane Poole and, and Arya know each other now. Jane Poole wouldn't recognize Arya in one of her many disguises, but Arya would absolutely recognize Jane Poole, even with her nose missing, which unfortunately There
1: would be uh, a lot of like interesting potential interactions that we would have there if that happened. Would Arya maintain her... Lack of self. Yeah, if she suddenly saw a childhood friend, could she keep herself together? You know. Yeah, it
0: would be a little test of her control, her self control. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> in addition to being a great role playing setting, it's got a lot of potential for a TV arc or a video game, right? Well, a video game is similar in the role playing game aspect. Of course, it's in, in this. Thought exercise. It's more about visual visualizing it, and seeing what it looks like, seeing like the mazes, with giant stone blocks, and this island. That would look fantastic on TV. It's looked really cool in some of the art that's been done for it. Highly recommend checking that out. And the sea snake has been there, so once again, that is perhaps our best hope in the short term. If the sea snake show happens, then well, Lorath was on uh, his list. He did he did go there, so we've got a little hope in that case. Let's talk about the geography of this lovely place. Maybe not so lovely, but interesting place. Only a Lorathi could love Lorath, right? <laughs> 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 that quote isn't actually in here, but I guess that's got to be our thing now. Only a Landatrix could love Castle Rock. Only a Mormon could love Bear Island. Only a Lorathi could love Lorath. The maze. Only a maze maker could love the mazes. <laughs>
1: You know, in discussions of like, where would you want to be in the Seven Kingdoms? I want to be in like the Reach. I want to be in some place that anyone could love. Yeah. I want to be in some
0: <laughs> weird, tough, remote place. Yeah, you Give me the fertile, like, yeah, land of plenty. Yeah. I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me be near Old Town. Let me be near all the stuff and the people. Yeah. The interesting stuff, the books. Yeah. I don't want to be no yeah. more ass for me. Thanks. I'm very happy <laughs> to read about it. But <laughs> that's, let's leave it at that. <laughs> so here's the quote describing its sort of basic features and direct geography.
1: The free city of Lorath stands upon the western end of the largest in a cluster of low, stony islands in the Shivering Sea, north of Essos, near the mouth of Lorath Bay. The city's domains include three principal islands of the archipelago, a score of smaller isles, and outcrops, almost all uninhabited save for the seals and seabirds, and thickly forested peninsula south of the isles. The Lorathi also claim dominion over the waters of Lorath Bay, but fishing fleets from Bravos and whalers and sealers out of Ib often venture into the bay for Loreth does not have sufficient strength to make good on its claim
0: mm-hmm. yeah so they don't have a big say state navy to enforce that hey, these are our fishing waters probably isn't a big deal though i mean it's probably not doesn't sound like it's being overfished it's not a high population area and it sounds like there's huge amounts of fish and sea life so it's it's not like a endangered an issue of of supply or anything like that. One of those other three islands is called Lorasian. So like I said, there's three major islands and a bunch of smaller, tiny ones that don't have people. We don't actually know the name of the third. Uh, I don't know that anyone really lives there or any substantial number of people live there, but it's worth uh, keeping in the back of your mind. As usual, we're discussing various lengthy periods in history. You know, while Lorath doesn't have the military strength right now to enforce its claim over Lorath Bay and the fishing rights and all that, it has in the past and may once again. There are certainly exceptions like that, so we'll get to those. They have been more dangerous, in other words. Interesting that the first known race of Lorath was said to be destroyed by enemies from the sea. And the modern Lorath, we are preyed upon by neighbors via imperial, naval superiority. It must be Lorath's fate to have its enemies come via the sea. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Or, as we'll see much later, in one case, they come via air. And you know what that means, because there's only one enemy that comes via air, breathing fire, hmm for example, here's a, here's a quote that shows perhaps the height of Lorathi power.
2: In former days, Lorath's rule extended as far east as the Axe, but the city's power has dwindled over the centuries. And today, the Lorathi exercise effective control over only the southern and eastern shores of Lorath Bay. The western shore of the bay is part of the domains of Bravos.
0: Mm. The axe, is just described, it's it's between Lorath Bay and what was Sath, i.e. Sarnor. You can see or look at the map later, if you don't have it up now, at the mouth of the Sarn, which we talked about a lot in our Kingdom of Sarnor episode, is Morash. And Morash is a colony of Lorath. There's some kind of mineral wealth there. There's mining there. And, of course, more fishing. The axe itself is disputed by Ib and Norvas, not by Lorath, but as Asheh just read that quote, Lorath has... Had control over the Axe in the past, just not currently. There are also some smaller islands in between Bravos and Lorath. They'll come up a few times today. They've at various times held populations and have been fought over. Liet Rubenfeld, frequent uh, commenter, quite often has some great takes and very helpful things to say. They say it's a bit like Iceland, perhaps. Uh, Sean, what do you think of this take? You, you looked into this a little bit. I think it seems a little, yeah, it's got some similarities, right?
1: Yeah, there's quite a few. Uh, similar to Loreth, it's had uh, it's been under the control of different entities over time, like through the Napoleonic Wars and World War II. But it still mostly maintained its identity, if you will. You know, and uh, it's also had several moments of its population, which we haven't got to yet. But we see this happens a couple times through the course of Loreth. Several moments of its population being like severely, you know, huge portions wiped out, like a oh. couple times as a result of a volcano going off. Uh. Which put ash in the air, and the livestock died, and people starved. It was hit by the black plague a couple different times. So several times, like a third or half of its population has been destroyed. Its economy is hugely based on fishing, sea life. Fifty percent mm. of its exports come from that. Okay. In modern times, it's gotten into more manufacturing stuff, but um, it also has a nearly non-existent military. It doesn't really ha- it has a coast guard, you know, but that's about all that it has. Okay. And also something that we talked about it a couple of times in the past was the, the, the effects of like climate change. And we were like relating it to how it might be like the long night. Mm-hmm. There, there was like a mini ice age in real history. Same thing at the time that humans first started settling in Iceland. It was a relatively warm period of time. Oh. And that at that time, a quarter of Iceland was covered with forests. Now it's only 1%. Really? Probably part of that is from they chopped down the trees, firewood, and built houses and sure. stuff. But also, it's just, it, it, just the climate has changed. It got colder. That's another time. It, it was like a mass exit of population from Iceland as the climate got colder, and it couldn't sustain the amount of people that were living there. Wow. Anyway, lots of parallels. That's true. But... It's also has some big differences. Lorath doesn't have it. Iceland has a constant active volcano. Like it's full of lava fields and uh, geysers. By the way, the word geyser comes from a spout of water in Iceland. (laughs) It was called geyser. And that name just started to be called any kind of spout of water like that. So anyway, while there are some clear parallels, I don't know for sure if Martin was... Meaning to draw from it, I yeah, maybe. that's unclear. Yeah,
0: yeah, you're right. Though there's definitely a lot of things that has in common, but it's not clear if Martin was drawing on. Certainly, a, a remote area. Yeah, there's there's a lot, and we'll as we go forward, we'll probably draw out some more of these parallels, and maybe you'll just notice them on your own. So yeah, it's not a bustling area like Iceland. There's there's not major wealth in food or minerals. Here's another quote: Loreth is the smallest forest and least
1: populous of the nine first cities. Save for Bravos, it is also the northernmost. Its location, far from trade routes, has helped make it the most isolated of the daughters of Larry that was. Just get thinking this is even more parallel to Iceland, is that its, its population, even now, I think is less than 500,000. Mm. Like most of history, its population was like 20 or 40,000 or something like wow. that. It's relatively small compared to the rest of Europe. But it is still significant, even though it's relatively small. It doesn't have the same wealth as some of the other countries. It is a little farther and more, you know, desolate or isolated, but it is still one of the most successful countries in the world by a lot of measures. You know what I mean? It's very progressive as far as women's rights. And it's had a lot of... Uh, Healthcare is really it's cheap there, I believe. wealth that so the people yeah. there is very high. It's like it, it, many like measures of how societies do. It's like in a top three of many, many measures. I, I don't know if Lorath quite hits that. <laughs> Maybe it hasn't had time to develop into that, but... It is just another parallel that Iceland is so much farther north than the rest of Europe and so, so more distant and smaller populated.
0: Yeah, you might have. I know they have. They do really well in health metrics. Like Lorath maybe does as well. There's, you know, fewer people, fewer diseases, fewer like all that. That lack of trade has is, isn't great, but the positive side is you're a lot less likely to get some random plague from halfway across the globe, which we've seen happen all over Westeros, like Gulltown, Town, King's Landing. They get hit by these nasty plagues that. Lorath would be a little less likely to get hit by. Or maybe a lot less. So that's, that's a nice benefit as well. Nina points out that Lorath is about on the same latitude as the Twins. Farther north than the Erie or Gulltown, but obviously farther south than East Seaton and North. So this real, that's a great point to keep in mind. That yes, this is as far north as Essos goes, but if you look at the map, <laughs> I mean, Ib is actually as far north as, as Essos goes. But the north of Westeros is far farther north than anything we know of in Essos. And that's something that I think we forget occasionally. You might think that Lorath or Bravos is like aligned with those spots. No. <laughs> when, you, when they sail out of Eastwatch by the sea and go south, it's, uh, it's straight over. But that's all the way at the north of the Wall, right? So yeah, there's all that lands beyond the Wall. Beyond the Wall. <laughs> that's why it's called that, right? Keep that in mind. That said... Here is a description of the... uh, Well, just further description of the isles themselves and what's around them.
2: Though the Lorathi Isles themselves are bleak and stony, the surrounding waters teem with shoals of cod, whales, and gray leviathans that gather and breed in the bay. And the outlying rocks and sea stacks are home to great colonies of walrus and seal. Salt cod, walrus tusks, seal skins, and whale oil form the greater part of the city's trade.
0: Take note of the walruses. Walrye? What's the plural of walruses? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And seals for later. There's a little bit of lore around them. uh, So you'll want to keep that in mind. But for the most part, those are not big money trade goods, right? salt, cod, seal skins, whale oil. I mean, those are you can definitely make some cash off that, but that's not gold or gems. Nina says, now, ivory from walruses, that is pretty big business. I- ivory is a fairly wealthy trade good. She says that, for example, the Vikings in Greenland made items from walrus ivory from chess pieces to sword hilts to jewelry, and those were traded as far as Kiev, Constantinople, Baghdad. So... That's pretty substantial. And we do definitely have ivory trade in A Song of Ice and Fire. Ger- Jerry and Lannister gave Robert a dagger with an ivory hilt. Ivory trade exists among the free folk. For example, Davos remembers trading for it while serving you know, up there. And yeah, we got to figure that's a big chunk of their economy. Because there's so many walruses, there's got to be a lot of tusks available for them to sell. It's, it's one of those combo names where Lorath is both the name of the island and the city. Lease is the same. Lorath Bay was mentioned around throughout these quotes, and that is the general region it sits in. But always an important perspective of perspection—that's not a word—perspective to keep in mind. This is a good one, isn't it, Sean? We think about we call it Lorath. It's written as Lorath in the common tongue, and this would be true for a lot of places in the real world. Not everyone calls it Iceland, right? It's had a lot of different names but it, yeah. over a lot of different times. And the more different cultures you're aware of that have lived in a, in a, in a place, just the more different names it's going to have had. And Lorath has had a lot of different cultures and types of people living there. It's one of the things that makes it very unique, very distinct, is it's, it's got these very delineated periods where different cultures live there and then either were wiped out or left or what, what have you. That implies that it's been called a lot of different things over the years by a lot of different peoples. And I put peoples in quotes because some of them are not human. Oh, uh-huh. not human, you say. Well, right there, we're tickling some fancies. Indeed, indeed, we are. But I'm really fascinated by that. that not only the different ethnic groups that took over, but usually they were gone or were killed off before the next group moved in, so there wasn't that much mingling. There's definitely some examples where there was mingling, but this, that, that kind of stands out, doesn't it, Sean? There hasn't been a lot of other spots like this that we've seen.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that is something that is pretty unique about it, is it, it, it was you know one culture, and that culture went away, and the new one came, and that went away, and a new one came. Rather than this constant melting, it, it seems like it could have been, and some of these islands maybe are more melting pots of cultures, but this one has been more singular, I guess, Uh, just changing from one to another rather than absorbing multiple in.
0: And I guess part of the reason why is all the stuff we just said, if it was some amazing, fertile, wealthy place, it would never be left alone for so long. It would would also be a lot harder to wipe everyone out. There would have been so many people there in the first place. Or if it was more central,
1: if it was a spot Mm -hmm. that had more traffic going by it, but it's just at the north end. So like a difference between the stepstones, there's not some reason for this constant traffic to be flowing past it. I don't want to go too far before we forget the new word that you coined,
0: perspection. <laughs> perspection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll have to try to use that one again, right? <laughs> It's an official word of the History of Westeros podcast, perspection. Well, let's turn our perspection.
2: I, just, I googled perspection. Is
0: it a real world or not? Real world or not?
2: Unclear. The, the website Lexico, powered by Oxford, says perspection is a rare noun that means contemplation, regard, scrutiny, inspection. So yes, yeah. It's a real world. I said world to him. <laughs>
0: Jeez. Bad, bad talk, infectious.
2: <laughs> you know, like, I guess it's kind of like introspection, perspection.
0: Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, anyway. Okay. Yeah.
2: Contemplate. Anyways, interesting. Nice.
0: Well, let's do some maze spection here. Our first <laughs> the first people who lived in Lorath that we know of were the maze-makers. Here's a little quote about them.
1: In ancient days, the Isles were home to the mysterious race of men known as the mazemakers, who vanished long before the dawn of true history, leaving no trace of themselves, save for their bones and the mazes they built.
0: Yeah, so let's start off by just setting some definitions out real quick. The difference between a maze and a labyrinth. Usually, when people are just talking about, excuse me, mazes and labyrinths, they're, the word is used interchangeably. Technically, if you want to be technically correct, though, and Sean, what is technically correct? The best kind of correct. Correct. (laughs) So that's real meta. So you're correct about the best kind of correct. Yeah. (laughs) Labyrinth is is more like a path. It's it's called a unicursal. If you follow the path, you don't get lost. One way in, one way out, or the way in is the way out. It's often symbolic of a spiritual journey, growth, or transition, especially transitioning to the underworld or the next life. It's a death thing, right? At the center is this new realm, either represented by it symbolically or metaphorically or whatever, some kind of awakening enlightenment is at the center of this. Think of Westworld. If you watch watched the show Westworld, there was the, the, the labyrinth. They, called it, they didn't call it a labyrinth. They used the word maze. But that was really more of a labyrinth, the way I, I believe. Well, maybe you could say it was a maze. I don't remember the exact pattern of it. But regardless, the concept in that in Westworld was understanding enlightenment. At the center of this maze labyrinth was human consciousness for these AI beings, right?
1: I think the people who made Westworld need to have some enlightenment of their own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <That's a, laughs> it started off really well, but man.
0: <laughs> it, yeah, that's more, it became more of a maze. They thought their pl- the plot was a labyrinth, but it turned into a maze. Because yeah. a maze is <laughs> a place designed to create confusion and it has dead ends, which... <laughs> Westworld definitely had some dead end plot lines and stuff like that. <laughs> and it definitely created some confusion <laughs> in the process, so... Sorry, Westworld fans. I'm still going to watch the rest of that show. I'll watch the final yeah, season. Yeah, me but too. But uh, it definitely uh, got lost.
2: Yeah, I don't itself. disagree yeah. with you. He-
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. It's pretty meta. that a show that has featured all these mazes <laughs> and labyrinths got lost on itself. Yeah. <laughs> That's very meta. But does that, so is, that, is that ever how you think about it, Sean? Or did you, were you aware of that definition? Or
1: I didn't exactly know the difference between them. And when, what you wrote out made a lot of sense, but it spurred me to look deeper oh, cool. and, and even think of it in different ways too. So generally speaking, the words at this point have become somewhat synonymous. Yes, yes, There may be like a fundamental original difference, but they get used synonymously. But here's one way to reconcile the idea of a labyrinth. And it also might be the one is, might be a subcategory of the other. But anyway, here's my point. You could have a labyrinth where there's only one way in and one way out and only one path to get through from the way into the way out. But within there might be other paths intermixed that you could get lost in. Yeah. Okay. Whereas a maze could have multiple ways in, multiple ways out, multiple ways to get from the entrance to the exit. Mm. But you still also could get lost running a dead end, whereas the labyrinth will only have one correct way through. A maze might have multiple different correct okay. ways through, yeah. even though both of them might be, confusing or have dead ends or whatever
0: else. Um, And if you're thinking in the spiritual, like enlightenment perspective, like if you've taken a different path, you've taken a different path, right? Like you have chosen a different form of enlightenment or to not be enlightened or some other. So there's a lot of like thick metaphor in here. (laughs) Yes.
1: A lot of potential for the words to be used with greater meaning. Yeah. One other little side note, Maze, you even bring this up a little bit later on, but Maze came from like Northern Europe, like old English. Whereas uh, labyrinth came from Mediterranean yeah. Latin, yeah, so they originated separately, which would also add to like nuances in definition or use. But True. eventually, you can see why they would get intermixed.
0: Yeah, I've actually got a little more on that point in, in a few minutes here, but yeah. uh, let's go back to bravos for a second. We have maybe something that's related to the maze makers, maybe not. It might just be a similar concept because again, this is a, a human concept that's come up in many places. The idea, whether it's coming up in Westworld or some or ancient Greece. Or whatever, or in, you know, in the UK, like you just said, Sean. The, the, for, I did notice through reading that the, England is particularly fond of mazes. <laughs> I think <laughs> England is the maze capital of the world, probably. That's something to know. But when Arya is learning bravo, she obviously spends a lot of time there. And there's a lot of different gods worship there because it's a land of many peoples. And there's a snippet that has this list of a bunch of different gods she's being told about. And here is this particular one, this one's particularly strange god that sounds similar.
2: And there, the entrance to the pattern makers' maze. Only those who learn to walk it properly will ever find their way to wisdom, the priests of the pattern say.
0: Uh-huh. So it could be just a different approach on the same concepts because it doesn't explicitly make any connections to the maze makers. Uh, maybe the pattern makers, a fan of the maze makers. I <laughs> don't know the pattern. This could be a reference to Robert Jordan. Copycat engineers. Yeah. Uh, Robert <laughs> Jordan, of course, the author of Wheel of Time. The pattern is reality in uh, the Wheel of Time world. And George has dropped several Easter eggs about the Wheel of Time. So this could be another one of those. That would make Robert Jordan the pattern maker, I suppose, <laughs> in this case. <laughs> I-, I lean towards it being a related concept. But it could be, you know, uh, inspired by the mazemakers, like a religion of humanity inspired by these ancient beings, whoever they were. But
1: especially because they're right next to each other, yeah. it's, it's it's not hard close. at all yeah. to believe that someone from Bravos in ancient times visited Lorath and then came back with this insight or this idea, or vice versa. You know, someone from Lorath came to Bravos and brought it with them, and then through the course of time, it would have branched in its own direction, language drift turns you know, mazed, patterned, records being wiped out and so on. It, it it makes a lot of sense to me for them to be connected.
0: Yeah, I mean, you got to figure like some, a lot of probably real world religions started that way. Someone discovered an older religion was like, I bet I could bring this around again. This They, they knew what they were doing with this belief system. A lot of people would follow this and so they might have a little bit of, you know, cynicism, a little ulterior motive with that in mind. But, Maybe not. Maybe they just honestly stumbled on it and were like, oh, I'm enlightened now. I need to spread the word.
1: There's a lot of thought around a lot of early religious founders that they are likely to have had the same central source or even communication with each other, Jesus and Buddha and characters like that. You know?
0: Some great coalition of, of leaders that were like, okay, here's how we do it. Here's how to make a religion. Let's work on this. <laughs> <laughs> but this idea, this only walking the pattern properly to learn wisdom, this really resonates for a lot of characters bran maybe most of all but definitely danny as well john perhaps even someone like stannis of course if it resonates for danny it, it a lot of things that apply to danny also apply to stannis and vice versa because they're on similar tracks melisandra you could argue as well is looking for the wisdom of how to defeat the, the others but she's a little off on who the savior is things like that you know these concepts are very resonant within a song of ice and fire and it's interesting that they're applied to these very young characters. These are people who aren't supposed to have had a long time to reach enlightenment or have had long life experiences. They're thrust in these roles at a very early age. So it's not something they have a lot of time to sit back and think about. But un- undoubtedly, the characters in the story will thrive or die or somewhere in between based on the level of wisdom they have and what they learn along the way. It's going to make a huge difference. And in Bran's case, in ca- in case he specifically has some access to knowledge that was gathered by many, many beings before him. So there's this path of wisdom. Can he learn from that? Or should he learn from that? or Somewhere in between, maybe. I don't know. I don't, I don't walk the same path of wisdom. I couldn't answer that question. <laughs> it's beyond all of us. That's the point. It, it, the path of wisdom isn't so easy to spot. So that's why mazes are a really interesting and appreciable metaphor for such things, for decisions. It's like, like Danny, the House of the Undying. Which, which way should she go? Which stairs should she take? Well, the Path of Wisdom said always take the door on the right. But it wasn't always easy to tell what the door on the right was. Like it got confusing for her. So I think this is... Uh, it's not always easy to see where this pops up in A Song of Ice and Fire, but it, it really does quite, in quite a few very important times. It's, it's not like a, a constant thing, but it pops up at the, some of the really crucial moments like House of the Undying or Bran's Weirwood Visions or things like that. And of course, we... Any character that leaves home... At the beginning of the story, spend several books out in the world only to find themselves back at home at the end. That's a labyrinthine journey, right?
1: Didn't Sam say something about there being no way he could have found his way to the tunnel under the wall without someone's Cold hands told him and then and then he told cold, then he told
0: yeah. Bran that they wouldn't have never found it without his help in turn, because he had been told. Yeah. Good point.
1: Is that like wisdom, if you will, like yeah. someone showing you the way? You it's know.
0: a little more straightforward, but it falls into that that auspice, I think. I think you're right. That umbrella. So here's another little real-world bit. The most famous labyrinth in the world, at least for us Westerners, is most certainly the one on Crete at Knossos, which the legendary slash mythical Minotaur was said to exist with Theseus and Ariadne and King Minos and all that good stuff. This one's confusing, though, because it's debatable. The, it's called a labyrinth, which means it should have the, the path, but all the accounts of it are a maze. It's got multiple ways in, multiple ways out. It, like, why would you need the thread to follow? Why would Theseus have needed to follow a thread if he could just follow the certain path, right? So it's confusing, but it's, it's, it's also very neat because this is something that's been studied a lot. It's really old. People have been living in Nassau since 8,000 BC. There's evidence of settlement super far back, partly because of natural caves and things like that, places to live, and this is a good spot to be. I want to plug the book "The Bull from the Sea" by Mary Renault, one of my favorite historical fiction authors. She writes. She had two books. This is the sequel to "The King Must Die." It's a historical fiction based on Theseus. It's from Theseus's point of view, which is really neat. Like super old historical fiction, that's hard to pull off. She doesn't like. Like I said, she does a wonderful job of it. One of my favorite authors, and it depicts Nausos and the idea of the Minotaur. It's not actually a Minotaur. It's a. It's a general named Minos who wears a bull-headed helmet and people are, you know, it's just, that's how the story, she, she just supposes that's how the story mm. became over time. People thought of him, oh, he was a bull or an actual minotaur. No, he was just a nasty man with mm. a bull head <laughs> or he's like a gendry. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> with a gendry I helmet. always assumed
1: that the minotaur was symbolic of something, that it wasn't actually a half man, half bull thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like the centaurs, maybe or just people riding horses, maybe it's a similar idea, right? Like you can see how that would be mistaken. But here's where it gets even more interesting. The double-headed axe is a really important symbol here. And you're going to you see... clarify, you're now talking about actual history, not this book. Yes, still talking right, about yeah. actual history, yeah. There's, there's been double-headed axes found all over Knossos and other places. So keep that in mind as we move forward, because the double-headed axe is also like horns. You can see that as the, the bullhead's horns is, is a symbol that way as well. So I think keep that in mind as we... Go through this next couple of points here. There's a there's these stone labyrinths of Bolshoy Zayatsky Island. There's 13 or 14 of them. All these labyrinths are in a relatively small area, and there's another huge stone complex elsewhere on the island without any labyrinths. So there's like a less than a square half square kilometer where there's 13 or 14 of these labyrinths on this really remote area in the White Sea, the Sovyetsky Islands. This is if you're in Finland and go due east into Russia into the and then you go into the water. That's where the White Sea is. The thing about these is, unlike Nasso's, they haven't been studied. There hasn't been like a ar- lot of archaeology or, or people sent there to, to do deep study on it. So it's really unknown. But these are the, the true labyrinths, where there are there's one path. Right? They're they're not a maze, and they are not very big. I mean, Twenty five meters is like square is like the biggest one. So. It's still pretty big for you know, Stone Age constructions. They had to move all these large stones around. But they're not like massive complexes, temple complexes. But they're just great, interesting old mystery. Like who built them? Why? What's the deal? Definitely there's echoes of uh, death within them. The transition to the next world is, is what a lot of people think it is. But no one knows for sure. Now here, let's look at a comparison with Laura. Here's a quote about the mazes, or at least the first quote about the mazes. We've got several maze quotes, so here's the first one.
1: Sprawling constructs of bewildering complexity made from blocks of hewn stone, the maze makers' constructions are scattered across the aisles, and one badly overgrown and sunk deep into the earth has been found on Essos proper, on the peninsula south of Lorath. Lorassian, The second largest of the Lorath Isles is home to a vast maze that fills more than three quarters of the surface area of the island and includes four levels beneath the ground, with some passages descending 500 feet.
0: Yeah, that is massive, right? Like, I just described this really crazy, creepy thing on the White Sea where there's a bunch of labyrinths in a really small area. That uh, that one tiny corner of an island had thirteen or fourteen labyrinths. This is like the opposite of that, where the labyrinths occupy three quarters of the island <laughs> instead of just one corner of it, taking all of it. It's the opposite, where only one corner of this island doesn't have a labyrinth on it, and it goes five hundred feet down. These these ones on Svalbard Islands don't don't go down at all. They're all completely on the surface. So yeah, <laughs> this is wild. This is really intense and, and imposing and amazing and super super cool. So think about this. If you have a similar, like, attitude, spiritual attitude towards this this symbolism of mazes and and enlightenment, it might be why people came here later. They're like, oh, these big mazes there. That sounds like a place for us to go to seek enlightenment. Later, we'll find out that the worshipers of the blind god Boash, or Bosher, I don't know how to say that, chose this location to colonize for their believers only. They were one of these... Valyrian sects that left to find to found their own spot where there weren't a lot of other religions around. Perhaps the maze makers were also that within their own people. Right? They were some, some lost race, but that doesn't mean the race was the maze makers. Right? This this could have been they could have been one percent of a larger race that ninety nine percent of them didn't build mazes, <laughs> but the other ninety nine percent built other things. It's weird for me that. To think that an entire culture were all involved in building these mazes. Weren't there people doing other stuff? <laughs> nope. All we do is build mazes. Like, ooh. interesting to think about that. This is an offshoot of a larger race and larger, literally larger, because they were bigger than humans. But,
1: you know, I could see it being like a focus of their culture. Just think of the effort that it would have taken for the pyramids to be built or even Stonehenge. Yeah. It took a long question, time. You're yeah, Stonehenge seemed to be something that people from around the country met together to work on periodically, mm. and I wonder if maybe the mazes. I also started thinking, like five hundred feet deep—that's that's getting to preposterous levels. You know <laughs> what I mean? That's like taking like modern technology, unless it, that maybe that it was already there. Maybe shafts were there that they built on, sure, like yeah. Castle Rock or something. But I also started wondering, i what if they were like? I mean, I'm just completely speculating here, but what if there were gold mines? And the mazes were meant to make it more difficult to get the gold out. You had mm. to, they wanted to keep it home. Or the material they dug out to get to gold or diamonds, whatever need, is what got built into the mazes, which maybe also makes it harder for someone to get in. Mm. You know, Maybe it had some semi-practical uh, be, or, yeah. purpose for defense or even sort of, uh, like you, we've said, maybe spiritual, the idea that like, you can't just take the gold and run. You gotta carry this heavy gold through this long maze. You kinda it, you gotta really be determined to leave your island or your home or whatever. If, uh, if you not, can't not sure, if, but, if you can't
0: find the right path, then you're not meant to find the right path, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, oh he, he found the way there. The gods must have intended that or something like that.
1: Or or even if you can find it, it still isn't. Quick and easy and straight. Yeah. You know, maybe also easier to stop you along the way if there's a bunch of turns and twists. Yeah. Uh,
0: On the other hand, that might be the, the point, might be the lack of resource. It might be like, hey, we want to go somewhere where people aren't going to fight over wealth. We want to be ascetics. We want to have low wealth. We want to be like the monk, like m- keeping Iceland in mind. Before any Scandinavian people settled there, it was called Iceland was called Thule. And it was just a place where like Christian monks would go it would be super isolated. That was vaguely portrayed on the show Vikings when Floki finds like a a single cross from a presumably Icelandic Christian monk that came over during the, the warm season.
1: I was going to point that out as another parallel because later on we talk about how eventually Lorath is repopulated after devastation by a religious sect. And Iceland also, at one point, was populated by a religious sect. That's another yeah. parallel to Iceland. And they could take it. It would be
0: a place to be one with nature, to be away from the world. That's a plus, that's a plus for some people. Like, if you want to be a hermit yeah. or you want to be away from all the wars and society, yeah, well, that sounds appealing to go to a place like that.
1: You know, another thought I had about a potential reason or use for the mazes, both here and in the real world, is there's another place where we have a labyrinth of source of sorts that are actually pretty common, museums. Museums usually have sort of like winding back and forth, pretty much singular paths, and it's to use the area in a contained space to create more surface for display. I wonder if they were had artwork or... Something along that lines, it's along the course. path that was part of their culture. A more
0: mundane version of that is just a queue, a line queue, where they make it go wind back and forth so that you have an airport yeah. or something like that. So it's just an efficient yeah. use of space. People just aren't a mast around. That's more straightforward. You're, you're definitely going to one place. You're going on a journey <laughs> and you're all, yeah. <laughs> it's, nothing, it's not very spiritual, but <laughs> it's not very enlightening. <laughs> <but laughs> it definitely uh, has the structure to it. And that takes some enlightenment. To be patient with it. (laughs) That's true. You got to find that inner patience. Ah, where's my calm? Yes. Mm. Ah, Zen. Got to have that podcast on in your ears to help you get through it. (laughs) But also, with the lack of wealth means that they're less likely to be bothered from without. Like, people aren't going to come invade them to take wealth that isn't there. Right? Let's not... Like Drogo. Drogo wasn't interested in Lorath because what's for him there? That sounds like a plus. The Dothraki aren't interested Sounds good to me. Yes, that is a plus. Like that's better than any big wall you could build is just they don't want to come. <laughs> it's more powerful than any wall. If, if your religion demands like isolation or alone time, yeah, this building a maze and putting yourself in the center of it, that would make you even more <laughs> isolated. I mean, it does. It's hard to put yourself in that mindset to be like, what if I wanted to be that alone and isolated? It does seem like that would be appealing. To. That said, given, given there will be a variety of different peoples here, it's not like the place doesn't have an extremely bloody history. It's just that the struggles tend to be more about race and culture than about wealth. People aren't coming to loot it. They're coming just to take it or to struggle over, you know, dogmatic things. So here's another quote as we try to figure out what they were doing with all these mazes.
2: Before I read this quote, I would like to mention that Aziz has never done a maze. He's never done a corn maze. And I think this fall I need to take him to go do a maze. No, oh, I live in the uh, south
0: I've lived in the south and Ohio, places that are full of cornfields. Maze. Oh. Ah, you call uh, it corn. corn. Yes. Maze, maze. A maze, maze, yes.
2: But yeah, I don't think I have either, by really, the way. Really, Sean? Well, I, maybe if I'm you need
0: thinking a, about it, I can't remember ever you're, being there.
2: You're going to come visit this fall and we're all going to go get lost. I think I did maze. a
0: really small one. Huh? Now that I, you know, thinking about it more, but nothing, that, it wasn't memorable enough.
2: <laughs> mm, no, do, we got to do a really big one. Yeah, we got to find did. like one we of the
0: largest, the, tw- the world's biggest corn maze.
2: Yeah, that would be great. I would yeah. love that. I, I think they're great. Anyways, here's the quote Scholars still debate the purpose of these mazes. Were they fortifications, temples? Towns, or did they serve some other stranger purpose? The mazemakers left no written records, so we shall never know. Their bones tell us that they were massively built and larger than men, though not so large as giants. Some have suggested that, mayhaps, the mazemakers were born of interbreeding between human men and giant women. We do not know why they disappeared, though Lorathi legend suggests they were destroyed by an enemy from the sea, merlings in some versions of the tale, selkies and walrus men in others.
0: So that last sentence is why I told you to keep those seals and walruses in mind, walri in mind, because selkies are seal people, walrus men, that's self-explanatory. So some idea that, that these Sea enemies destroyed them. There's tales like that in other places, like the Thousand Islands and, you know, in the Whispers, plays it's discussion of, of sea creatures like, not just Merlings, but the old ones, or the deep ones, rather, and the, the Squishers. Yeah, the Squishers, right. My guess is, is as far as the mazes, for the mazemakers, my personal guess, is that it's, it's this categorization thing, this sorting, like a sorting hat. <laughs> this, their version of, of uh, Harry Potter's sorting hat. But a religious version rather than a, like a school version, as in God tells you what path you should be on. You go into the maze, you go where you go, and the priests interpret your path as something about you. This, is, this determines your path in life or what kind of person you are. If you go the right way, quote unquote right way, that says something about you. Maybe there would be like some cheating where rich dad tells his kid, you know, take the one on the left and that'll, that'll get you into the priesthood, which is, yeah, that's where you want to be. I imagine there would have been cheating and things like that. But is it like a, a way to create hierarchy within society? Something like that. A way, to, a way to put people above other people, which is something that all societies tend to do. So that's neat. What do you think about this, Sean? What, do you have thoughts on what you might I think, think they're for or just any general ideas here?
1: I think that's a neat idea but I I don't know, I didn't huh, I didn't go as cynical with it as you <laughs> just it just might be that you know if you go this path then you're going to be a stonemason if you go this path and you're going to be a painter if you go this path and you're going to be a, a farmer you know not necessarily putting someone over another but just finding your trade if you go Like your first two you know,
2: trades you mentioned seemed very larthy <laughs> painting and stonemasoning <laughs> they <it> definitely seemed <laughs> ones.
0: Mm-hmm. You're another fish, um, no, another fisherman. Yep, you fisherman, fisherman, fisherman. <laughs>
1: Especially if one path came out on the coast. Okay, you're a fisherman. Yeah, one right. You know, in a field. You're a farmer. One path goes down into a mine. Okay, you're
0: gonna. I, I really yeah. love that
2: idea. It sounds it's kind, of kind of like It'd
0: be a way to like to make people think that the gods had chosen it rather than people. Like the, mankind didn't choose this role for you. The, the heavens chose it for you, and that would make it more like a more rigid society, because people wouldn't sure. wouldn't move, wouldn't move out of their God chosen roles if they truly believed that's what it was.
1: Beyond that, you chose it for yourself too. You right? did.
0: You took that path. You went maybe there. Something, you know, maybe something. Maybe like, some subconscious to it. You know, um, yeah.
1: especially if along the way there were whether it was meant to be or coincidental or or cheats or whatever. But if there was, you get to a path. And there's a painting of a fish on the right and a painting of wheat <laughs> on the left and you go left and you know, that might, I can easily see them using it to direct people yeah. where they want them to go. Like if we know that our society is short on farmers right now. Okay. Like wall off the path,
0: <laughs> wall off the right turn. <laughs> Put a little this sweet year. smell on this one. Like, oh, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, it's a trail of food. It's or, like yeah. some baking You can bread. see all kinds of ways that <laughs>
1: it, it could be manipulated in cynical or, or appropriate ways, you know, but. I still think that... Uh, I'm still going back with the 500-foot shafts. I think that there was a mine. I think there was some sort of value in the earth that they were digging out and wanted to make it more difficult to escape with it or for it to be discovered by outsiders. Hmm. Yeah, think it, that
0: could that, really could a, it could that be. Really, It could also be all those other things by we by said.
1: Yeah, yeah the, the, value, the wealth might have been used up or lost and
0: forgotten. Sure, yeah. 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 So it's like a myth convergence. You have merlings and selkies and and walrus men and giants who bred with humans or some other different race entirely. Maybe they're like halfway between giants and humans. So a lot of stuff converging in this very out-of-the-way remote location, and that makes it extra cool. Nina says, in in her mind, the myths of merlings or merling-like creatures come up too often in this universe to be simply coincidental or unimportant to the narrative. More to the point, antagonistic creatures from the sea aren't unique to Lorath. Crack Claw Points, Legends of Squishers, or that the fish-headed gods worship on a thousand islands, the Deep Ones theorized on by Maester Theron. Ironborn's own claims to literally descend from sea people themselves. So it's pretty believable that not only what the lore myth say is true about being destroyed by sea people, but also that the mazes were built as a way to keep them out, to keep the sea people from penetrating deep into their territory. They emerge from deep. the sea and attack.
2: The Deep Ones. The Deep
0: Ones, yeah. The steep Ones. The Steep Ones. <laughs> and... If they're only... Let's say they can only stay out of water for a certain amount of time. Anything that would delay them would be good. (laughs) Anything that lowers that... Yeah, I like that. Shortens their length of time out of... Because those thousand islands are only like a jaunt east. You know, they're not close, but they're on the same... Along the same coastline. And then you go south. Yeah, I mean, they're everywhere. These myths exist... The Ironborn... The Iron Isles are pretty damn far away. And they have similar legends, at least vaguely similar. So... Yeah, it sounds like there are creatures beneath the sea in Martin's world. <laughs> yes, and and the idea of the mazes being a way to slow them down like the inner the, the regular people know the mazes the sea people's don't. So yeah, it, it, it kind of like what you're saying, Sean. They're not protecting mineral necessarily. They're just you, it'd be hard to get in and out quickly and that's the point. You wouldn't be able to the the, the thing that's being stolen maybe is humans. <laughs> but it could so, be it could be yeah. Like it would work for either, you know. We definitely have confirmation that people lived in the mazes we don't know the mazemakers did but definitely humans came along and did that that's not all though within this topic is a theorized link to the so-called strange stone let's have a quote in that regard
1: the labyrinthine nature of its interior architecture has led Archmaester Killian to suggest that the fortress might have been the work of the mazemakers mysterious people who left remnants of their vanished civilization upon Lorath and the Shivering Sea the notion is intriguing but raises more questions than it answers. What, what is this structure talking about? I remember this, the, is this, the, the the black the, the tower
0: base of the high tower, the strange stone of base the high, high tower, tower yeah. which has like it's a little bit labyrinthine on the inside. Yeah, I don't think the evidence holds up super well. Um, for one reason, there's not there is no strange stone on Lorath that we know of. There's mazes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How can we possibly feel confident that? the archmasters who are in the dark the farther east you go the less they seem to know about what they're talking about I don't have confidence that they know Lorath really well right so uh, it's definitely possible you definitely can't close that door
1: I don't have confidence that people in Lorath know Lorath very well Right, yeah. The interiors of those mazes could easily have those secret doors, weird like black stones yeah. and yeah, passages yet to be discovered yeah. or, or being kept secret that ha you know even if they have been discovered.
0: Yeah, there's there's so much potential for hidden rooms or just unknown stuff in there. It, it like Castley rock we talked about the hidden tunnel in, in uh, gibraltar with the the nazi stay behind tunnel thing <laughs> like that wasn't discovered mm, yeah. for a long time and that's with modern technology and people know and knowing that it was there to look for here nothing nothing like that but not that we know of anyway so that's really neat who knows what the archmasters are in the dark about Yeah, no, quite literally in this case mm-hmm, yes all now right. Uh, let's do some questions here and then get back to it. Pulled Porg Sandwiches. The pattern could also be a Roger Zelazny reference to the Amber series. Yes, actually, I have seen that theorized before. The pattern is a phrase he uses a lot in those books. And George R. R. Martin is absolutely a fan of the Nine Princes in Amber series by Roger Zelazny. I think maybe I've told this story before, but it's so fun and quick that I'll tell it again. I was... Hanging out with one of George's assistants in Santa Fe, and we go to his bookstore, George's bookstore, which is right next to his movie theater. They're directly next to each other. And there are two people working behind the counter there, and uh, we're chatting with them. You know, they're all friends. I'm, I'm new to this group, but they're all friends. They've known each other. She had used to work for at the bookstore before she worked directly for George. And when we leave, she's those are Roger Zelazny's kids. <laughs> And I was like, "What? <laughs> I was like what? Really?" Rogers Lousy's kids work at George R. R. Martin's bookstore. That's right. Yes, <laughs> small world.
1: <laughs> you know, there's a role playing game. I think it's called Amber, based on this world. Yeah, and it has. I haven't read these books, so I'm not super familiar. But the, I think that you know the. The world of this role playing game is set in this world. But it also has some unique role-playing dynamics. For example, mm-hmm. they don't use dice.
0: Oh. They, they
1: rely a little bit more on just, I don't know to say this like the experience and intuition of the players just to do what makes sense. Does so that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's a little more role-playing based than like random chance based. I think there's some other system for that It might be like a bidding system for how you get your basic stats. Rather than roll a die and see you have a high strength, everyone makes you have like points and you bid points to see who gets highest, lowest, middle strength, That's or whatever.
2: That's how, like, but. in the game it's on sport game <laughs> hmm. where you bid your ah. points.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's no dice in that either. Yeah, the, the Zelazny, this amber world is, is sort of multiversey or maybe multidimensional, might be a better way to put it. But yeah, there's like world, there's going to different dimensions and worlds, and like these different amber princes rule their own dimensions and start fighting each other. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty epic. I read it a long time ago, I don't remember it super well. I read it in like the nineties. Christina Kay says sometimes certain like religious or cultural groups will walk mazes on the ground as a way to meditate. Yeah, I mean, I go. brought
2: up the show Foundation, which had a whole oh. big arc where um, Lee Pace's uh, Emperor character goes to this religious planet and walks the maze, and it was a
0: that's right, a really well done. I can't believe I didn't think of that. That's a great example. Yeah, really yeah. good
2: the show itself I'm like if you like sci-fi it's a fine show it's got it I just I don't want to I want to be on record that I don't think it's an amazing show I think it does some things very well and some things very poorly it's just, yeah,
0: like like it's got multiple plot lines some yeah. of the plot lines aren't that good and some of them are it's just so, that simple. Yeah. so that,
2: that's why my disclaimer if you watch yeah. foundation after me bringing this up
0: it's almost better <laughs> than Don't you blame me. View <laughs> yeah. it as a separate project from the books, because like the the foundation books are have always been viewed as unadaptable, and I'm not sure that this changes that. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it's interesting. Yeah, some of the stuff they made up for them made up that wasn't in the books is some of the best stuff, which is yeah, it's weird. The adaptation part failed, but the the create their creative, their own endeavor worked out. So whatever. Anyway, moving on. Tara Incognita says Walrus Men and Maze Makers, the Walrus and the Carpenter. <laughs> Mm. all right <laughs> nice nice christina k also said this is from an earlier comment on discord technology advances but cultures and societies don't and definitely not in a linear fashion instead they adapt to their circumstances and environment just like city folk are confused in the country and country folk are confused in the city neither is more advanced than the other they're just used to different things it's a great point like we don't build monolithic structures anymore she says is that progress or the opposite, or neither. It's neither. It's just we value what we value. We don't care about building that, so we don't do it. If we started caring about it, that wouldn't make us better to our ancestors or inferior to them or whatever. It would just mean we care about different stuff. Another way you could look at it is who did more with less. Yeah, these civilizations did great things, but they had it easy. They, they had technology given to them by other being like... On the other hand, like Stonehenge, well, they... That was clever. That had to, they didn't have technology, you know? So things can be impressive... Now versus impressive then, based on how much work it was, how much creativity. And it's not always as simple as just older is less advanced and now is, is more advanced, right? Even if we're taller now, that <laughs> doesn't mean we're smarter or wiser. We, we haven't walked the path of wisdom necessarily.
1: It's relative, you know, among many other factors, it's relative. Like if someone wanted to build Stonehenge now, it'd be pretty easy with modern technology. But if someone wanted to build just a basic house 2,000 years ago, it would have been, you know, like yeah. the best technology in the world would not make a house, an average house that we have in modern times.
0: Yeah. So it's an important point to remember lots of cultures are going to adapt to living in the strange environs of Lorath and the maze makers that was created well before them. There's not, there's that's a somewhat of a unique thing is to come move into an empty place where. People spent thousands of years building it before it was left empty. And that is just amazing. Like the One of the better modern examples I can think of is these, em- these empty Chinese cities, right? The ones that were pre-built that almost no one lives in them. It's like that, where you just stumble upon a pre-built metropolis. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> no one lives here. It's got street lights, buildings. I mean, in some cases, a few people live there. You've got like a town designed for 4 million people that has like 50,000 people in it. So it's not entirely abandoned, but it's, it's got that feel to it. And this... I imagine like a few settlers moved to Lorath after the maze makers are gone or after the hairy men are gone or whatever, which we're going to get to all the different people that live there. It would be just awe-inspiring. You're like, no one lives here? This is empty? Whoa. I mean, that would just be... I, I can't even imagine the, the, the depths of emotion and, and just awe I would feel in such a place.
1: You might even think it was amazing.
0: Oh! <laughs> bah! Bah! <laughs> It's pretty good. can't believe I beat you to that. Pretty good, (laughs) pretty good. A couple of real quick facts from Wikipedia. Largest indoor maze in the world is in Dubai at the Gardens Shopping Mall. The largest period is in Samso, Denmark. It's 60,000 square meters. The the UK loves mazes most of all, as I said. There's three examples. The Cliveden house was originally laid out in 1894. Restored in 2011. It's got 1,100 yew trees. The public can go there. Chatsworth House Garden Maze has 1209 yew trees. So these are yew mazes. That's pretty cool. These U mazes are for me and you.
2: Do you mm. think i just... Do you think it's... Do you know? Is it Cliveden or is it Cliveden? I
0: have no idea. Okay, I'm going to say... It could I be, be Cliveden. Clive yeah. I, don't a guy named I don't know. Clive I'm just curious.
2: I, sure. I had to know if it was some like weird British pronunciation that you knew and I didn't.
0: Yeah, I you don't I'll, know. You you definitely don't take my word Okay. I'm pretty sure it's Chatsworth.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one seems pretty straightforward. <laughs>
0: But and then I'm pretty sure this next one is called York Maze. I don't know of another way to say York, but <laughs> this one is located near RAF, which is that Royal Air Force, Elvington and constructed using maize. It is a maize maize, you know maize meaning corn, and it's specifically Dalek corn, D A L E K. Yes, spelled like Doctor like, Who. Like the in fact, this maze was built to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. Oh,
2: wow. <laughs> it is a Doctor <laughs> Who
0: maze maze. <laughs> Made from Dalek corn. Surp- that was a surprising thing to run into. And we could be like, wait, what? <laughs> 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 also, just amazing, right? 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. <laughs> that show has been around a damn long time. 50, I think. Yeah,
1: it's, it's right. evolved a lot, but that's definitely multiple generations of a show. Guilty
2: Undertaker says, not surprising that Harry Potter includes a maze. Then, and that's true. The fourth book, one of the main parts of it, is this this maze at the end of the Triwizard Tournament. Uh, and you're right; it must be a very British thing to have mazes.
0: Yeah, like basically, I just if you look at go to Wikipedia and look and, and look at the entry on mazes, and it's got examples of real mazes in the world, but just. There's just a lot of them. UK clearly has the most based on that listing. Spain was next, I think. But there could be lots of others that just weren't written there. Like maybe some of the, the Chinese ones just weren't in Wikipedia because English speakers didn't put it there. I don't know.
2: I googled this, this just now. I looked up biggest maze in Georgia and I see that it, here in Georgia we have Uncle Shuck's corn maze. <laughs> uh, someone says it took them thirty-five minutes to, tra- to, to traverse it, but I'm good at mazes. That's pretty long. So that's a someone who's good at mazes. Mm. It's the largest corn maze in Georgia, and we're going.
1: Interesting. All right, <laughs> it might take us thirty-five days. <laughs> 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 thirty-five days in the maze.
0: <laughs> so yeah, we don't know much about the maze-making people. As it said, they're large but not as large as giants. We don't really know if they were hairy like giants are. If they were, then it would even more strongly imply some sort of evolutionary connection, maybe an offshoot. Given that they're in between the size of humans and giants, that could be a clue, especially because people and giants, there's been talk of, of that being a thing that can happen. Hodor having giants' blood or Umber's having giants' blood gets, gets talked about in somewhat jokingly, but partly serious. So the next people that moved there were apparently the hairy men. Here's a quote.
2: Others followed the maze makers on Lorath in the centuries that followed. For a time, the isles were home to a small, dark, hairy people akin to the men of Ib, fisherfolk. They lived along the coasts and shunned the great mazes of their predecessors.
0: So that's interesting. That's unique, I think. Lots of people are going to live on these isles but only these Ibbenese, or these cousins of the Ibbenese, they're not proper Ibbenese, I suppose. I suppose they're cousins, shun the mazes. All the humans who take...
2: could you say they're Ibish?
0: <laughs> yeah, they are <laughs> Ib-ish. <laughs> That's good. All the humans who move to the island seem to universally live in the mazes. They're like, yeah, let's use these. Let's take, take these over. Maybe they don't use all of them. But in general, they're like, yeah, well, this is existing construction. Let's, let's make use of that. So it sounds like the Ibanees, maybe they should have, or these hairy men should have, because they, they're going to get slaughtered. And if the mazes were used for defense, well, maybe they should have repurposed it just for that. The, we do mention, we do talk a little more about these hairy men in our Giants episode with Amanda Crowfood's daughter. They are larger than the Ibanees, smaller than the Giants, etc. And we also mention them in the Sarnor episode. Remember the legendary High King, Huzor Amai, skinned... The king of the hairy men, or something, and wore his word as a pelt, which we were like, That's, that's pretty grim, man. <laughs> like, how humanoid were these guys? Because that's, that's Bolton stuff, man. <laughs> you know? It's just kind of gross. It is just <laughs> gross, yeah. <laughs> I guess it's, if you see them as, as pure animal, it's not that different than wearing a lion pelt, I guess. And it's not like they have textiles to wear back then. You got to wear something. I don't know. The same story ends up happening, just like the am I slaughtering hairy men. The hairy men of, of Lorath couldn't hold on. I'm sure they didn't call it Lorath, but they couldn't hold on to it. That's why I was throwing shade on them for not using the mazes. Maybe they should have used the mazes, but it's the same reason the first men couldn't hold, hold on to Westeros. It was those pesky Andals coming in their great numbers with their iron weapons and their blonde hair and their blue eyes and all that Er, you know and they're seven pointed stars (laughs) but first super chat from our good friend TKOK podcast network saying Vargo Ho talking about all the cool stuff he did in Lorath and everyone thinking he banged Loras (laughs)
2: like Lorath is so beautiful (laughs) I'm like wow he really loves Loras okay (laughs)
0: because of that's a hmm yes, the good one. Yeah. <laughs> Comes out better in the audio book when, when Vargo hoats speeches. <laughs> Let's talk about the Andals. Here's a quote.
1: They in turn were displaced by Andals, pushing for north Andalos to the shores of Lorath Bay and across the bay in longships. Clad in mail and wielding iron swords and axes, the Andals swept across the islands, slaughtering the hairy men in the name of their seven-faced god and taking their women and children as slaves.
0: That was the general pattern in the region for the Andals and the Hairy Men. They were slowly pushed back towards Ib. And, and Ib is pretty much the only place they exist now with a few exceptions. Obviously, they they get around. They're traders and, and sail all over the world. But as far as home bases, that's the majority of it's there. This bit about slavery, though, that's a little unusual. We, we don't really hear about that before. The Andals enslaving the Hairy Men, I don't recall seeing that elsewhere. And you wonder how that can even be al- allowed. Maybe anti-slavery aspect of andal culture came along later or the same reason they can wear a pelt of a something and not think of that as like wearing the skin of a human because they their loophole might be that it's illegal to enslave other people and if they don't think of the hairy men as people then to them it doesn't count which that comes up throughout the history of slavery in our in the real world, just dehumanizing someone or saying, oh, they're not really human. They're lesser in order to say it's okay to enslave them. So I, I, the same sort of energy is is present here, I think.
2: I mean, I guess I feel like the Valyrians could have had a similar thoughts too. Just oh, like, yeah, uh, everyone that wasn't a Valyrian was fine to oh, yeah. enslave.
0: Totally agree with you there.
2: And I mean, we see that with the Targaryen exceptionalism too come up to play in Westeros' this idea of like, we're, you know, separate species. Better. Yeah.
0: And they, and, and sadly, they had very distinct things they could point to to sort of back that argument up, which got a lot of people to buy into it. Like, hey, we can ride dragons. You can't. We've got disease resistance. You don't. We can have, we res- resist heat better. You can't. Right.
2: I mean, not going to lie, if someone comes up to me in the real world and shows me all of that evidence, I'd be like, yeah, I think you're probably a better specimen. Than I, am. <laughs> yeah, I,
0: would, I would prefer your genetics to mine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It still doesn't mean I want them to enslave me no. or I think it's justifiable. Absolutely. Like, I think if your genetics are really superior, you should be able to see that. I think that would be
0: part of being superior is yeah. recognizing slavery is wrong. You know. Yep. Totally agree with that too. <laughs> We're making some good points here, my friends. <laughs> So you can really see how the mazes could be used as well to indicate hierarchy. This, these mazes could enforce that. Like the closer to the center of the maze you live in, the higher up you are, the closer you are to the center of the godhood or the center of whatever, the center of what's important, however they see it, whatever the religious significance is of these specific people, whatever the andalls of that time felt, right? The labyrinths are often symbols of journey towards enlightenment. So the, the closer to the center you live, the closer... It's saying that you are more enlightened or that you are closer to God, right? It says that in a societal manner. So it's a fascinating combination of elements here. You got worshipers of the seven living in these huge mazes. It's not, it's not what you picture when you think of septs. It's very different. Like they, they aren't building, they're maybe building septs within the mazes or decorating it, adorning it with iconography of the seven, but still going to be in this old mazy thing built by someone long ago. And that's just very different than picturing like the, the Sept of Remembrance or the Rhaenys' High Hill, the, the churches in Westeros and things like that. It's just so different. This very odd like combination of worlds colliding that's, that's really neat. I really hope we get to see it on TV at some point. It could really, they could really go off with, with the, the imagination. Nina also says, I I also wonder what these Andals thought of the pre-Westerosi. Andals believed that Westeros was their promised land. Since clearly they didn't join them in going to Westeros, right? That's a great point. Westeros is where they eventually all went, obviously fleeing the Valyrians. Was this a religious sect of the faith that branched off, meaning this group? Or was the other group that went to Westeros, were they more of a sect, just a large one? What's the relationship between these two groups? We also don't know. When this happened, I think this was later. I think these are Andals that stuck around that didn't go to Westeros. Because I think, the pretty sure the Westerosi Andals happened before this. But I definitely don't know for sure. Definitely don't know for sure. Maybe another theory from Nina that I like a lot. Maybe there are multiple competing ideas on where the promised land was. They're fleeing from the Valyrian expansion. The Valyrians are, are subsuming them, conquering them, enslaving them. A lot of people are fleeing to new lands. Some of that would be rooted in religion. Like, where, where's the new promised land? See, the same thing with Nymerian her people, right? Where's the new promised land? Some of them were convinced that it was Westeros. Some of them were convinced that it was Laura. You know, we get lost deep in the mazes. The dragons can't find us down in there. The dragons don't like Westeros. Let's go there. They've, they've already shown they don't like going there. It's a place where we can be free of them. There's good arguments for both of these. You got to make your choice. The maze, for their, their maze journey forked there that was their decision
1: i can imagine there's a reason why this group of andals ended up in this spot and others ended up in westeros if this group believed in slavery like maybe they're like
0: that could be a or different factions you know very good point sean very good point yeah that's that is a distinct potential difference there you're right i like that idea uh it could also just be regional like these could be the ones that lived closer to lorath and had heard about it i mean the andals were not confined only to the Axe. They were confined. They were all over northern Essos, northwestern Essos, I suppose. And the pushing back by the Valerians was a very gradual thing. You know, it wasn't something that happened just within one generation. It happened across potentially hundreds of years.
1: Same thing if you think about Europeans coming across to America. There were different groups of Europeans at different time periods. In fact, Greenland, a faction of people left Iceland to settle Greenland, you
0: know? Yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and we've, we've made that point over and over with the first men. We only think of the first men as the first men because we don't know how to divide them into separate groups. That We know they had to have had separate groups. They couldn't have all just been one monolithic body. And it's the same with the Andals. They may have closer relationship culturally to each other. There still would be plenty of divisions, cultural and, and otherwise, based on geography and background and subcultures, things like that.
1: I mean, not to beat a dead horse, but even if at one point the Andals were this single monolithic group that were of a mind and religion that was all the same, and a group of them came across to Westeros,
0: hmm.
1: a hundred years later, that same group that was monolithic before has probably evolved split into new different factions and those people then also come across. And does that make sense? Like, even if at one time they were, over time, they keep coming across. They don't stay the exact same monolith over time, even if they were at one point. They probably even weren't at one point in the first place,
0: but... Huh. That's that's neat. So here's another curious real-world connection that's also a possible connection in Planetos. So think about what we've been saying with regards to the Andals, with axes, and then go back to our earlier discussion on labyrinths. The word labyrinth might, in part, derive from the word labrys, which means double-headed axe. So a labyrinth could translate as house of the double-headed axe. And a double-headed axe could also very easily be seen as horns, as I talked about before, which brings up those Minotaur vibes. That look is going to be true in fantasy as much as it is on Earth. Double axes are all over this ancient Minoan religion. The Minoan religion was the one present on Crete, on Knossos in this time of Theseus and before that. But it wasn't a weapon. A lot of traditions hold that it wasn't a weapon. It was a divine feminine symbol. And For example, in that book I was talking about, the bull from the sea, there's a... And this has been found. This is real. They found a, a throne-like spot with a bathtub in front of it and a like big altar behind it and all this other stuff. So what, it, it sort of looked like a throne room but eventually people were like no this isn't a throne room this is like a religious like altar because the the throne the, the throne was looked like it was for a woman it was small enough like the impressions were like woman butt sized and it was somewhat common for women especially to dress up like a goddess and to act like they're the avatar of that goddess she would sit on this throne dedicated to a specific goddess and then act out these rituals And there'd be like purification. That's what the bath would be for. There's some sort of like baptism type thing going on. So coming back to this, the relation here between axes and labyrinths and mazes is that the Andals come from the axe. And in the world of ice and fire, there's a lot of speculation by archmaesters that the double-bladed axe was their original symbol that was eventually supplanted by the seven-pointed star. And very nearby is very religious Norvos, which still has the double-bladed axe as their chief symbol. Think of Ariohota and how he sleeps with his axe, calls it his wife. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. And other archmasters argue that Andals founded Norvos, which would fit perfectly, like double-bladed axe. It eventually turns into this Norvosi belief. It goes in this direction. Lots of time has passed, so they've become pretty separate and distinct. And all these connections are supported by sheer proximity, right? All these things are really close together. Norvos is right there. Roth is right there, etc. They're all, they're all pretty close to each other. That is very rich vein of potential ancient connections there. I like that a lot.
2: Hmm, that's interesting. Someone, a uh, guilty undertaker, brought up something that I was thinking of too, which was that that's probably why some lesbians use the double-headed axe as a symbol. And that is a thing. There's flags, there's lesbian flags and stuff like that that reference the axe, the double axe. It,
0: oh, so it goes back to so that. It's a feminine the axe. symbol. Yes. Ed, that's
2: probably what they're referencing in that.
0: That's pretty cool. I definitely that it makes sense when you hear it because it's if it's a feminine symbol and it's two two headed like two, the same like mirror images. Yeah, yeah like it's you often have,
2: called the labris. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was it. yeah. It's like okay.
0: Oh, <laughs> oh, I see. Yes. <laughs> 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 a <labia> rinse. <laughs> oh man,
2: Gosh,
0: where it's see that's why men can't find the nose. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Also, back then, in this, this time we're talking about with Norvos and the, the Axe and the Andals and all that, remember, there'd be no Bravos back then. Bravos is more relatively recent. But there would have been a kingdom of Sarnor, and all the cities of the Rhine would have been there. So that's just, just think about who else was around in that era they would have been trading with, interacting with, having negotiations with here and there. The Andals, though, in their own time, before being ejected by Valyria or during this, the push of Valyria, spread out around this area. The different islands we talked about were all taken by Andals. At one point, there were just a, like a dozen kings, four of them on Lorath proper, another one on Lorassion, another one on each of these little islands, like the Ironborn, a little bit like that, where each like rock kings and all that. Roughly a thousand years of this state of affairs, supposedly in this era also, the, the Lorathi contested the Ibanese over Bitterweed Bay. We talked about that in in the Kingdom of Sarnar episode as well. The one that has a bajillion ships sunk beneath the waters there. Lots of battles have fought there. That's probably this era when this happened. Because it seems like the Lorathi expansion was at its greatest during the time that they were Andals. They were ruled by the Andals. And eventually, an Andal king called Carlon the Great, another George R. Martin special with a name that starts with Q and doesn't have a U after it. <laughs> but it's Carl. Carlon, yeah, Carl. You got a lot of those. So he conquered an area around Lorath that included what would eventually be Bravos and all the coastline in between and started to move south towards Norvos. He, he, he built his base on Loracion. He had a wooden keep in the center of the huge maze in Lorassion for which he... Gave orders and sent troops out. It sounds pretty fascinating, like a really unique kingship where just the king, the king in the maze. What what, what kind of a clever name would George come up with that? The king of the labyrinth, the the king in the, I don't know. That's
2: just. It's obviously the goblin king. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The labyrinth is Jared. Yeah, of course. That's
0: a great call. Yes. They would, instead of king, they would be called the Bowie. <laughs> 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 and they would wield the ceremonial Bowie knife.
2: <laughs>
0: but this, this whole... The Bowie double-bladed axe. You've got to have the axe <laughs> in one on the other hand. Yeah, you're right. This got the attention of Valyria, this incursion, this heading south, this trying to carve out an empire. And that brings us to our next section, which I've called the Doom of Lorath.
2: It is written in the fires of the Freehold that a hundred dragons took to the skies, following the great river north to descend upon the Andals as they lay siege to Norvos. Carlon the Great burned with his army, and afterward the dragonlords flew onward, bringing blood and fire to the Isles of Lorath. Carlon's great keep went up in flames, as did the towns and fishing villages along his shores. Even the great stones of the mazes were scorched and blackened by the firestorms that swept across the islands. It is said that not a man, woman, or child survived the scouring of Lorath, so hot did those fires burn.
0: So again, this was before the wars with the Roinar. so maybe this sort of gave them the idea of what they could do when they all ganged up on someone. This might be the first time like a lot of dragons all went to one place. Certainly the oldest one I can think of. So this would have been, that would have been about 500 years after this, the attack on the Roynar, when, when all that came together. And that attack on the Roynar would have been a thousand years before current events. So as I said, Carlon's Keep was was wooden. So that's not great against dragons. However... I do wonder why were they so brutal to the rest of the isles. Like, what was the point of that? They're like, yeah, we killed this king. Let's go kill everyone else too. Like, why? Why'd they do that? <laughs> I guess they were just nice. having fun. I don't know.
2: Well, they've got to make a big symbol of it. You yeah, they know? just wanted to make, make, an make a show, make an example exactly, and then all the other cities won't do that.
0: Yeah, that's probably it. Probably something like that. Yeah, just make an example of them. There could have been a commercial reason, like some of these other freeholders, oh, I'm in the whalebone business and I want to shut down a competitor, but that's maybe less likely because, again, there's just not a lot of big industries here, you know, and I don't know. It's possible, but it's a, maybe a thinner theory than some other possibilities. I
1: remember being, like, I don't know, disturbed and frustrated by the idea that they, they burned the armies and then went and burned everyone that lived back in their home. Like, the idea that, the idea that it's maybe a lesson to other people—I I think that's bad logic too. Like, I could still see that might be a reason they had it. They don't necessarily have a good logic. But the thing is, when you have a tyrant, when you have a war-mongering leader, he doesn't care about his people. He doesn't. You know what I mean? <laughs> the fact that his people might face some retribution is not going to. Maybe I guess I won't attack because I'm worried
0: about my people.
1: You know, that's not <laughs> no, the mentality yeah. of tyrants. You know? Yeah,
0: you're right. Yeah, and th- but and the Valyrians were tyrants too, so I suppose like they just don't care. They're just like, yeah, they're. They don't want to take even the tiniest percent chance of, of risk here. They're like, we don't care anything for these people. To them, it's again, it's a superiority thing. Like It allows them to think of these Andalese commoners as no, no better than seals and walruses and crabs, like the other beasts that live in this area. So here's the next quote that describes what it was like following the scouring of Lorath, which is the official name. I called it the Doom, but, you know, it gets the point across either way. Here's the quote.
1: Thereafter, the Lorathi Isles remain uninhabited for more than a century. Seals and walrus returned in great numbers, and crabs scuttled through the scorched and silent mazes. Whalers from the port of Ibn put ashore to mend their holes or find fresh water. But they never ventured inland. The islands were to be haunted, and the Ibnese believed any man accursed who went beyond the sound of the sea.
0: So that's back to the same business we saw with the Ibnese before. They're not willing to go in the mazes, which tells me they didn't really check. (laughs) I mean, we've heard in modern warfare, you cannot capture a city with planes only. Right, You have to you bomb it into submission, then you send in the infantry. Right, So I'm extremely skeptical that people didn't survive deep down in those mazes. 500 feet down in a maze? How's the dragon fire going to get down there? And it's not rocket science. There's dragons coming down. Get underground. That's the most obvious <laughs> place to go. So I'm real skeptical that literally everyone was wiped out. I'm guessing some people were there. However, they would potentially be just as reluctant to leave the maze as the Ibanez would go in them. Because they're like... We don't want the Valerians to find out we're still here. <laughs> we do not want them coming back. We want to stay hidden for a long time. They might be very afraid of going back to the surface to alerting anyone that they're there, right? So that might be why history remembers them as being gone because they were intent on making, <laughs> making it known that they were hiding or not letting anyone know that they were there. So I could see that. It just adds up to me logically. But still, it was undoubtedly a catastrophe. I mean, total devastation is probably pretty accurate. Um, or only a small exaggeration at most, an ecological reset. It's not the doom in the sense that the landscape is permanently scarred by magic, but it is another time where, well, people can come back in. You know, anyone who wants to come live here, it's wide open for you. And we saw the Ibanez show up in smaller numbers, but they didn't want to live in the mazes still because of their belief about not staying away from the sound of the sea.
1: I like that device, by the way. I think that's a really good sort of setup in a fantasy world of having a culture that. Doesn't believe it, and, and it's almost like a like in the real world. Seafarers for the longest time didn't want to get out of sight of land, you know. So it allows for this unexplored area, you know. Uh, allows yeah. for secrets and mysteries, you know. That's I mean, anyway.
0: cool. Yeah, you're right. That does fit with the setting really well. The old role playing idea too. You'd have this area that could have been explored, but because of religious customs, they it never was. Because yeah, they, no, we just don't do that. And it's a little bit like Bravo's this idea that they could be hiding because Bravo's kept its location secret for a long time before. The unmasking of Uthero. But unlike Bravos, you've got people coming to settle there because people know the place exists. They just don't know the people there. And they don't know there's, you know, a location. So when a place is empty for a while, maybe eventually someone's like, you know what? I'm gonna go live there. And that happened with the worshipers of the blind god. Quote.
1: When men at last returned to the isles to live, there were men from Bleary itself. 1,322 years before the doom, a sect of religious dissidents left the Freehold to establish a temple upon Laura's main isle.
0: So this was the year 1,436 B.C. You get an unusually precise dating for that. When we discussed Valyria, it came up that some religions ironically didn't approve of the freedom of religion that the Freehold granted and went elsewhere to a place where no other gods were worshipped. This is an example of that. Nina gives us another real-world example, say the pilgrims who first left England where they disagreed with the mainline Church of England, not for North America, but for Holland, first in Amsterdam, and then in Leiden. While the pilgrims initially appreciated the religious toleration of the Dutch Republic, they eventually left Holland in part because they disagreed with what they saw as lax religious observance of their Dutch fellow Christians who still, for example, they would work on Sabbath. The pilgrims would not. That's just one example. So there's definitely plenty of real-world examples where people are like, look, if you're not going to we only want to be around people who follow our religion like really well. We don't even want to be near others. And a place like this is pretty perfect for people who really want to be isolated. you got this remote, out-of-the-way place that apparently has been scorched into non-existence, just waiting for someone else to go move there. The blind God worshippers are like, that sounds like us. Here's another quote.
2: These new Larathi were worshippers of Bosch, the blind God, rejecting all other deities the followers of Boche ate no flesh, drank no wine, and walked barefoot through the world, clad only in hair shirts and hides. Their eunuch priests wore eyeless hoods in honor of their god. Only in darkness, they believed, would their third eye open, allowing them to see the higher truths of creation that lay concealed behind the world's illusions. The worshipers of Boche believed that all life was sacred and eternal, that that men and women were equal, that lords and peasants, rich and poor, slave and master, man and beast, were all alike, all equally worthy, all creatures of God.
0: That last part, you can see why the Valyrians wouldn't approve. The Bravosi would, but again, there were no Bravosi in these days. (laughs) So they didn't have those friends to agree with them. So I really must question the wisdom of choosing to be blind while also choosing to live in a place full of mazes. You really have to have faith. <laughs> you won't get lost. <laughs> I mean, maybe your memory is a facet of Godhead, like your subconscious memory of these paths. And if you can't find them you're not meant to. Maybe they're truly enlightened.
1: It sounds like it based on their belief system. Yeah,
0: yeah, they, that's certainly the way they would frame it. Nina says, I wonder whether it was considered more appropriate to worship the blind god in Lorath. If the doctrine of the blind god was that the world was full of illusions and that Boche's followers had to see past them to reach the truth, then maybe they saw the mazes as a manifestation of these earthly illusions, artificial trickery that they had to navigate to see the truth. And their blindness would only heighten the difficulty, so prove themselves even more worthy of finally reaching the truth. Yeah. it's, it's You're putting another obstacle in the path to this enlightenment, which just makes the journey, the success of that journey, all the more meaningful, all the more triumphant. When you're trying to remove um, the distractions of the world, your own senses can lie to you. Like you, We're all seeing things through eyes that aren't the same as the eyes of God. So this is these metaphorical, metaphysical ways to get closer to God by removing the things that take you away from it. Your own senses can, can fool you and trick you. That's why this quote is written that way or has that in there that only in darkness could their third eye open. Nina also says the followers of Bosch may have also have looked to Lorath past, both under its prior inhabitants and its scouring by the Valyrians as sort of a clean slate for them as designated by their god. They may have seen that as, look, this path has been made clear for us. This land was given to us. We are the inheritors of it. It's ours. It's all, it's destiny. That's what their faith tells them. So she continues, for people who believed that all men and women were equal, a place that had been cleansed of its past of slavery under the Andals might have seemed like Bosch himself had worked through the Valyrians to prepare it for his followers, to spread his doctrine of equality there. That's pretty nice. I like that. I like that take by Nina there. By the way, anyone who's read Stormlight Archive, are you probably thinking of Moshe here? Bosch and Moshe? Bosch and I don't Bosch. Know how to say uh-huh. Moshe. It's the same spelling with an M instead of the B. wow. I keep thinking,
2: you know. Hmm.
1: There is a name, I think it's, I want to say it's a Latin name, hmm. Boaz, B-O-A-Z, oh. it's Boaz. I know. Yeah, there
2: is, I I, well, I I know Boaz is like an Israeli name, like a Hebrew name.
0: Okay, so I, I don't maybe know. I have it wrong, yeah. Okay. Hmm. So that's really neat. Now, this brings us back to one of the main characters. Here's a quote from Bran, A Clash of, thing, a clash of Things, <laughs> Bran, A Clash of Kings 7, which we called The One Where Hodor Opens the Door. This is the last chapter in The Clash of Kings, by the way. Three
1: days, said Jojen. The boy had come up softfoot, or perhaps he had been there all along. In this blind black world, Bran could not have said.
0: And then later, uh, a few paragraphs later, there's this line.
1: Here in the chill, damp darkness of the tomb his third eye had finally opened.
0: So, same concepts. Blind black world down in the darkness in the tombs where Bran was. They had no light down there. And that's enlightenment did come to him. He finally opened his third eye. He reached out to John, the three-eyed crow. Three eyes, right? Like straightforward. And that's what he first encountered that in the blind black world of his coma dream. Lots of similar language here. And the third eye is just... We've been hearing about third eyes through all sorts of metaphysical religions and and as a conception conception long before Song of Ice and Fire. But it's definitely present here. And so that makes it most relevant for us. Really cool. I like that. This connection seems very rich. Not entirely sure what to do with it, but it goes to show maybe this is what a form of enlightenment in this world looks like. Yeah. It's not just human enlightenment. There's some, perhaps a supernatural element to it, which in brand's case is definitely the case. The Worshippers of the blind god, maybe, maybe there is something there for them too. Maybe they can tap into a magical energy, perhaps. The magical overlap, grand magical overlap theory that we've been running on for a long time perhaps applies here as well. Having this all come nicely together with this Brand quote is pretty cool, huh, Sean? Have you used that phrase before, the grand magical overlap? No.
1: I, li- I like that. It's
0: GMO. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you pro or anti GMOs? <laughs> no, I, I just said made that up on the fly. Yeah, we should use that the grand magical overlap.
1: It fits well because I was back exactly in my mind. I was thinking I, I've, many times through the course of this. I think of how what in quote unquote reality could be a god or you know supernatural force. That in different points in time or different cultures has manifested into a certain god or religion, but it's really the one central thing. Yeah, this could just be another example of that easily.
0: I agree. I totally agree. It really hits hard in that sense that this could be the same form of enlightenment, the same sort of third eye, the same purpose behind all that. It's the same relative methods of reaching it. You've got the the blind black world, the labyrinthine nature, the tombs versus. Blood Ravens Cave, which is also maybe more maze, but still just a lost, blind, where enlightenment does exist if you are able to tap into it. On the other hand, speaking of the complete opposite, non-magic, we've got Varys going to live in a maze built by someone else. Reminds me of Varys mastering the Red Keep on a more mundane level. He shaves his head (laughs) like a lot of these uh, the the ascites of the Bosch worshippers. Varys is known for he doesn't really drink. You, wear, you know, he doesn't wear fancy clothing. He does do the perfume and, and tries to smell nice. But he sleeps on a stone bed, right? He's very... Doesn't keep a lot of wealth for himself, at least not that we see. So he's kind of got this... He's got a lot in common with these blind priests without the religious stuff behind it. So that's that might just be more parallel than an intentional connection. But it's still pretty cool. And keeping with Varus, well, what's the deal with Varus? He has this like... Hardcore attitude, he separates himself from these pleasures, but he's still, still doing evil stuff, especially with these children. You know, he's, he's like, oh, I want to make the world better, but he's doing really dark things to make it happen, cutting the tongues out of kids and using them as slaves. And, uh, so this is w- the parallel here is that these hardcore Bosch worshippers, these blind priests were really dedicated, but it only took about four or five generations before they started to get corrupt. You had other people starting to live there who were subservient to them, putting them in a position of power as the heads of the religion started to corrupt them over time. They started to be above other people rather than, which is directly antithetic to their beliefs. You're not supposed to be above people. It's a view everyone is equal, right? That's from the tenets of their religion. And when you're not upholding your beliefs, the things that make people respect you, well, you're not doing the thing that makes people respect you anymore. They're not going to respect you anymore, right? And they be, mm-hmm. you, Instead of being a, a source of discipline and enlightenment, you're just demanding like, Jerks that take your money
1: <laughs> and <laughs> hypocrites too. I mean, that's not much. Turns people off more than hypocrisy. You're right. You're right. And so, like someone who's doing bad things will still have more respect if they own the fact that they're doing bad things. If they, you know, I don't know, for better or worse, if they embrace it rather than are deceitful about it. It's like an extra layer of bad. You yeah,
0: know? I think we're really at that point, uh, at that kind of a point in, this, in our in our in our real world right now, where. So many people, we've gotten to the point in, in our culture where so many people just refuse to admit they're wrong about something that it becomes super refreshing when someone does. And it's like, it's like, it's like ah, someone admitted they were wrong. How nice, how refreshing. It's like, really, this should happen more often, man. <laughs> like we should, we're all wrong all the time. <laughs> it's constant that we make mistakes. Eh, oh, well. Now, we're not trying to solve all society's ills here. We're talking about non-existent societies. But, but, but these, real, these are real things that happen, well. whether it's fantasy or reality.
1: Yeah, power corrupting is a, a a constant theme, like in the world, and history, and culture, and literature—not just in Martin's world and these stories. Yep, and and the, and justifying the means, like thinking about like Varys, many other characters who. They at least believe they have some good big goal, but how they get there, yeah. They end up doing evil things. And probably the, the the good big goal they have is to stop someone else who had a good big goal but did some evil things to get there, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really it is really interesting. That's one of the things I really like about a song of Ice and Fire. I know some people prefer their fantasy stories to have the good guys and bad guys more distinct. Who's what? But that's but and that's fine. I have no problem with that. And I enjoy that from time to time. But this is this helps us understand the real world more having the the, the grayness of that reflects m- how most people are. Some people, yeah. Some people are dark gray. Some people are like off white, <laughs> you know, which is like,
1: and some people yeah. gro- t- turn gray to white or yeah. back to gray. They're not monolithic. You
0: know. They're not the same their whole life. Yeah. Some people turn and change. And, you know.
1: and in modern world, it's broad and expansive enough that we also have some pretty clear good guys and bad guys, right? There's, Lots of gray. In the real world, there's mostly gray, but there are Brians and Joffreys. Yeah,
0: there certainly are. Mm -hmm. Those are good examples. Well point. (laughs) So this blind god cult stuck around for a while, even as it lost power, but it was completely gone by 700 BC. So 700 years before the conquest. And that takes us to our next quote, which gives us pretty much what it's like now, um, in a manner of speaking, and Ashea is going to read us another quote.
2: After the fall of blind priests, Lorath became a freehold after the manner of Valyria, ruled over by a council of three princes. The Harvest Prince was chosen by a vote of all those who owned land upon the islands, the Fisher Prince by all those who owned ships, the Prince of the Streets by the acclamation of the free men of the city. Once chosen, each prince served for life. These three princes continue to sit today, though the titles have become purely ceremonial. The true authority resides with a council of magisters made up of nobles, priests, and merchants. Its isolation meant that the Lorathi were little involved in the events of the century of blood. Save for those few who sold their swords to Bravos or Norvos.
0: Yeah, Lorathi cell swords are definitely a thing. We we'll see a few of those around. Jock and Agar, who is our last topic today, is masquerading as a Lorathi cell sword. The prince's part of three princes there is similar to Pentos, except for some pretty big differences in that they serve for a year and are often ritually killed, where in Lorath they serve for life. So it sounds like the princes in, in Pentos have a lot less power because, well, if you can be killed and only rule for a year, well, how in charge are you really? <laughs> you know, it's part of the part of their system. But, but still, just the naming of princes based on uh, basic functions, like the prince of the fields is very similar to the harvest prince. But three princes, is that like an advancement on the um, the spin doctor's method of rule <laughs> there? Yeah, that's what <laughs> I said now. Nina says, once again, the practice of democracy in this world is limited to select social classes or elites, which was true for much of democracy's history in our world as well. The harvest and fisher princes could only be elected by those with sufficient capital to own ships or land. And the sailors on those ships and the hired laborers or slaves on that land don't get a say on who will be their leaders. Likewise, the prince of the streets was elected by the free men of the city. That's code for (laughs) letting excluding not just slaves, but women, free men of the city, not free people of the city. So Probably very similar to Greek democracy, where only landholding land holding citizens and citizen meant landholding men. I didn't need to say landholding citizen then, just citizen. <laughs> land holding men. Code for that. So yeah, so citizen ha- is a very differing term depending on what time or place you're speaking of.
1: This has come up a lot too. I do want to point out, even there is, you know, a hole in these ostensibly democratic systems, it's still better than a tyrant. It's oh, yeah. still better to have men and landowners voting than have no one voting, I, I think. you know? Yeah,
0: um, you're right. And, and that's actually a thing I've read. I've been, I've been rereading a lot of some of my favorite stuff from ancient Greek history, the era, the post-Alexander era. And that's a thing. You'll have sliding scale on democracy where at one point, 30,000 Greeks were voting in Athens and then it was reduced to about 12,000. And then it was brought back up to, because based on how many people are citizens, based on what the threshold is, what the cutoff is, it's like modern voting laws. Like certain people are excluded. We, ideally, we exclude very few people, like maybe based on age, you know, I, you know but cert- obviously other things get used like criminal convictions or in some countries, it's yeah. failure to pay taxes, which is really evil because then you get into debt slavery and your money is directly tied to whether you can vote, which is, that's wrong. That shouldn't, you know, that's not good. So. At least by our modern values, anyways. it seems
1: like a, a, a natural course, a step in the right direction. It has to go through that, but it, it seems to be something that has naturally happened many times over the course of history. So, on oh, yeah, the subject yeah. of
2: like taxes and voting, one initiative that I for America that I, I think is like interesting, promising is the idea of a tax credit for voting. Oh. if you get a tax credit for voting it incentivizes voting it doesn't penalize you for voting so kind of, anyway mm, yeah I think there are some countries are already Yeah, that, right? huh? some countries do stuff like that yeah exactly variation you know there's different ways basically but the idea to like again incentivize voting makes sense
0: give people the day off of work like yeah that's if the you biggest thing they
2: could do is just <laughs> make that a national holiday yeah. and no one has to work and people will be more likely to vote but that won't happen anyways yeah. for sure
0: yeah so there are yeah so there's this is the opposite of that. We're, we're instead of encouraging people to participate, this these old systems, Earth, planetos, whatever, keep as keep the power in as few hands as possible, because the people at the top want as fewer people below them controlling their lives, because they feel entitled to do whatever they want.
1: You know, I wonder if George is meaning to have a parallel with these three princes to having three branches of government, like legislation, judicial and executive or whatever, yeah. which, by the way, Iceland has. Hmm. And I think Iceland also, ha- I don't think it's like a three party system per se, but I, I wish I knew a little bit better. But I don't, I, I, I seem to remember reading somewhere that they, it's some sort of plurality as opposed, as opposed to majority. Oh. So they don't evolve into a two-party system because they just need a group with the most votes. So they end up having at least three parties consistently. So okay, that's good. Again, not sure if George meant that, but <laughs> it is uh, another. We saw a similar thing when we
0: talked about Valyria and the Freehold with uh, with the uh, Athens having three leaders as well. Mm-hmm. Three that are elected: the archon, and then the, the military leader, the religious leader, and the government leader. I believe it was, if I have that correct. In summary, on the peoples there, you have mazemakers, then the hairy men. Then the Andals, and the Andals wiped out the hairy men. Then the Valerians wiped out the Andals. And the Boish worshippers came in, and then the Boish worshippers didn't get wiped out. This is they were supplanted by migrations from all over. And it it has a Bravos feel because one of the things that's mentioned specifically is escaped slaves, religious outcasts. Bravos is a religious freedom place. So just and as well as just general randoms, you know, it's a place where you can go. It's it's more it's got open doors. Unlike a lot of other places, they are more restrictive to move there. There's not as many things you have to do to be allowed to live there, to be a citizen. They're probably, you're not, you're a lot less likely to get like suddenly drafted <laughs> by, you know, like, ah, let's grab all the foreigners and make them fight for us or something like that. There's a lot less likely to be some sort of upheaval. So it's safer in that sense. It's less likely to be invaded from the outside. So that's again, really building on this idea of it being this out of the way place but not too out of the way, right? That's what I said at the beginning. It still has that vague aspect to it. And, and this has been going on for some time. This is why I pointed out the Roinar and their destruction and tried to place that in the timeline here because that happened after the Bosch worshippers went to Lorath. So some Roinar probably ended up at Lorath. It's a long way around, right? You got to go all the way around because they probably didn't go overland. But still, probably some of them went there. There's probably a few. And to this day, they're also helping to support Soth, as we recall. There's that one colony that's still, or that one city of Talmen, the Tegeas Fen, the, the people from Sarnor. And Lorath apparently is tight with them in some way, some sort of mutual benefit going on there. They got their Morash colony nearby, Soth, and, Lor- and Lorath sits over here. So that's neat. We also discussed Lorath briefly. In the Stepstones episode, they came up. They were part of those wars between the free cities. They, they helped bring down the Triarchy, a.k.a. the Kingdom of the Three Daughters, with their allies Pentas and Bravos. The Triarchy was, of course, Mir Lise and Tyrosh. So that's six of the nine free cities getting involved in it there. And that brings us to an important question going forward. The fact that Lorath does get involved in global politics and the fact that most of the cities seem poised to get involved in global politics towards the end of the series one way or another what side will Lorath take? It's a little easier to see in some other examples. Like Volantis, not going to be on Danny's side. <laughs> not, not very likely. Pentos, uh, I'm not really sure about Pentos. That's where Illyrio is, and she may come in conflict with him. And there's the, the Tattered Prince's claim on Pentos to take into account. I'm not sure. Bravos, also hard to tell because we've brought that up several times. Will they be anti slavery? They're going to be pro her because of the slavery or anti her because of the dragons? Lorath, similar question. Where, what side will they take, if any? Yeah, will they join her? Will they be against her? I really don't know.
1: Right now, it seems like it might be irrelevant, though. They don't even have enough military to control their own borders, right? That's they, true. Their their own claim to the Lorath Bay can't really even be enforced. So that might be
0: an opportunity for them, though. If they're like, "Look, if we take, if we side with Danny, she might give us something," you know, as for taking her side, yeah. and that might help improve our city's fortunes going forward. So I'm I'm thinking not just of during, but maybe at the end of the, the outlook at the end of the series, maybe they've come out of it. Maybe they can leverage the coming conflict into something good for them. On the other hand, they're far north where it could get really really wintry. (laughs) They're not in in Westeros, but they're not that far away. So, Mm, yeah. We haven't been to Lorath, of course, as you probably are aware, but we have spent a considerable amount of time in Braavos, which isn't far. They're both ports. There's a fair amount of traffic between the two. And my headcanon is that if you've ever had to catch an international flight when you live in a more rural area, you, you tend to have to travel to a bigger city to get to a bigger airport. I think if you're like wanting to go to YT and you're in Lorath, you probably go to Bravos to find a ship going somewhere farther. You, you might be able to find one in Lorath, but you know, yeah. Could be similar to Hall right? Hall was abandoned and not very powerful for so long, but it's, you know, a lot of different people have held it, but no one's kept it. Maybe it's a, Vaguely a similar metaphor to what happens with Lorath. Constantly, dis- the people who are there, are constantly kicked out, destroyed, and then taken over by someone entirely new, and then they lose it as well. <laughs> so the The structural pattern of Hall is similar to to Lorath. Okay, last topic for today: Jocken Higar. Not truly from Lorath, but given he's a faceless man trained to be just like what he's pretending to be and do it well, he probably is a pretty accurate rep- representation of that. Here's. A quick quote from him. This man has the honor to be and
1: Hagar, once of the free city of Lorath. Would that
0: he were home? <laughs> Would well, that he were home? Where is your actual home, though? <laughs> yeah, are, are we sure that he's not from Lorath? Yeah, well, probably. I mean, Arya asks about him, and to the kindly man, I don't know who that is. Because it's just another disguise, most likely, or she's yeah. or, she, or he's lying, but probably just another disguise. Because we maybe, we see maybe him change his face into something that isn't. Lorath-y. He might
1: be in the role of someone who was originally from Lorath, but That's his true. true self
0: isn't. Uh, That's true. You know, Arya wore the face of, of a real young girl, the the ugly little girl, or whatever. And yeah, I mean that was my guess, memories.
2: Was that that face was from Lorath. Yeah, But that was a Lorathi face, Lorathi hair, all that. Just the person assuming the face isn't originally from Laura.
0: Yeah. So, so Jockin may have been feeling the actual memories of a real Lorathi person. So, Jockin has the red hair, white hair thing going. And that's a Lorathi custom, apparently. Um, not really sure what that speaks to. Is that, uh, is that imply? Is it metaphorical? Is it a symbolic of something religious or something about Lorath? I'm not really clear on that, but it's cool. It's presumably not a lower class thing, though, because hair dyes are not likely to be.
2: You know, I really wish we had a Lorathi. available? I really wish we had a Lorathi here.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah? Why?
2: We could Lorath them that
0: question. Oh, we could Lorath them that question. (laughs) What's the lore? We could ask them about their lore. And that manner of speech thing, you notice how how Jockin speaks there. They don't refer to themselves in the first person. That's a religious thing. That's a, a relic of the blind God worshipers. Their customs mostly have fallen off, but that stuck especially the upper class of Lorath, think it's just really gauche to refer to yourself in the first person. So it always refer to yourself in the third person. It's probably more widespread than just a nobility because it's a manner of speaking. It's not like something you require money to do, like the hair dye. But still, it's interesting that Jockin chose this identity. Like, why choose to be Lorathi? Again, I think it's because of this whole remote, but not too remote. Like, people will have heard of Lorath The customs won't be familiar, but they won't be completely alien. And maybe that's part of making him seem a little dangerous, a little sinister. Like, Rorge and Biter were afraid of him. It Could be because he just did some faceless man stuff in front of them, and they were like, oh my god. But, like, maybe it adds to the effect if he's a a little foreign and speaks differently, but he's still speaking common, so it's not like a completely different language, so he's recognizable but different. Does that Am I going anywhere with that? Is this just my imagination? Or is that, can that make you seem a little more intimidating or a little more alien or something like that? Is that?
1: I, th- I think it can. I think it gives you the ability to lean into one or the other. Mm. You know, you, you, I don't know, you can play dumb, you know, like where I come from, blah, 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 you know, yeah. but you can, you can also, that can be a sort of a wisdom. Like, well, where I come from, we do that. You know, you could, you get
0: two cards to play, you know? Yeah. That's true. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. So, folks, if you have more thoughts on this, I'd love to hear your takes on why George may have chosen to make Jockin from Lorath of all the possible places. Would love to hear your thoughts it, on that or anything else about Lorath.
1: It's also right by Bravos, so he knowing about one would make sense. You know, about the other that's being true. from one would give him more insight into the other. He could play the role better or whatever. Yeah, so. that's
0: true. It is. You know, House of Black and White. It's not. It's relatively close to Lorath compared to, like, say, the other free cities. So. Yeah, they would, there would be a decent number. Like we said, there would be a decent number of Lorathi in Bravos, And that would, yeah, maybe may easier to fit that way. So, yeah, pretty cool. I like that. Good stuff, folks. All right, let's begin our, begin our outro. Since Jockin isn't truly Lorathi and he's very mysterious, there's not a whole lot we can say about him other than to point to the, the culture and the way he speaks as a, as a nice example of differences within the world and something that may become relevant later. I would definitely like to see more Lorathi. To see us go there, whether on TV or in short stories, I don't really think Dunkin' Egg will go there. But hey, I guess you have to consider that a possibility. You never know. You never know where they'll go. There's a lot of Duncan Egg stories, <laughs> and some of it will be driven by the fandom. You know, a lot of what comes, what, a lot of what is yet to come, is going to deter- be determined by what we all express interest in. Right? Like uh, on a much larger scale, we have votes every week for what episode to do next. And, well, not all art is democratic or somewhat democratic like that. They're listening, you know, they're doing focus groups and testing and saying, well, what do people care about the most? Looking at data on the first Game of Thrones show, saw what people engaged with so the basically, most, which characters were the most popular.
2: If you So basically, if you want a Sea Snake show where he explores the world, when House of the Dragon comes out, you better tweet and talk about, hey, I want to see Yeetie. Hey, I want to see the world. I want to see Coralise. You know, we we, we got to show up and, and be vocal about what we want we do. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that goes double with a character like the Sea Snake where there's, you know, yeah. extracurricular activity going on around that because of they made him black and all. And that is all the more important reason to <laughs> stand up for that character because we want shows about him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't let the, the negative People ruin it for the rest of us. Let's tell them what we want. Christina Kay, again, with a great comment here, says, you know, given the link between language and thought pattern, I wonder if the lack of pronouns in Lorath makes it easier for them to be faceless men. Oh, the different, yeah, just the way language positions your own thoughts of identity.
2: The rest of the comments are about this that I have there, so you'd want to continue. Okay,
0: cool. Dornish James says, I wondered something similar, Christina, that detachment from the sense of self. And that detachment from self in Lorath is interesting, given it is somewhere John considers sending Aria who has been learning how to detach her. in a great comment, dorna Dame. Christina Kay responds exactly, and it definitely happens. Gendered languages, like the Romance languages, do th- change the way people think about gender. Yeah, yeah. If you're if you're an American learning Spanish, you you find out that almost every word has gender attached to it. Sometimes that's confusing. It's like why? Why do some of these words have gender attached? To them? It'll make any. Like, why are we gendering like? basic items you know <laughs> like
2: yeah the wrath you're like why are we adding pronouns to yeah, yeah. basic <laughs> actions yeah
0: yeah and of course that's and that really speaks with the the blind god stuff with them they're eunuchs they like degender themselves as much as they can
2: hmm.
1: you know i think that's another thing in iceland i think that they don't really? I, I i wish i could be a little more certain but i don't even think they would use mr or mrs they just call everyone by their name
0: Interesting. Uh, yeah. And Mr. and Mrs. is a great example of like imbalance. like there's Mr., but then there's Mrs. and Miss, which is those are two different things. But so Mr. Yeah. is the same no matter what. It's like, well, why? <laughs> I, well, I mean, here, there was a reason. It's just not a very good reason.
2: <laughs> I see here Icelandic culture does not typically use honorifics. So this is someone talking about like talking to professors. You know, if you're So you don't, don't use Mr., or Mrs., or
0: Professor. Or yeah.
2: The, uh, it says, okay. yeah, the use of honorifics in Iceland is very limited today. So it does seem, according to this Reddit thread, Perhaps that is the case.
0: You know, a lot of that comes from like military culture, you know, honorific sir, ma'am, and colonel, general, whatever. And you point as you pointed out, Sean, they don't really have a military there, so there would be lesser military culture, maybe yeah. less hierarchical thinking in that regard. That's cool. Very cool. Thank you for the takes. I once again am impressed by the knowledge of those of you who are coming live and commenting ahead of time. Adds quite a lot to our discussion. All right, the trivia question. The question was, which location has multiple wonders of the world? The answer is, it was mentioned in this episode, the answer is Norvos. Norvos has both the great bells, which are man-made, and the caves. We've talked about some cool cave systems and mazes around the world, but only Norvoses are considered a world wonder, so... They're even more impressive, apparently, than some of these others.
2: Notable about the Bells of Norvos, for our Lomas Longstrider episode coming up, we're looking at getting some art commissioned of the Three Bells of Norvos. You have that to look forward to.
0: Yeah, right on. Next week, we'll be discussing, as voted on by patrons, the Clans of the Vale. That includes their history. That includes Nettles and the Sheepstealer. That includes... What might be coming for them in after they've gotten equipped by Tyrion? (laughs) There's they're definitely a Chekhov's Klansman because their their role in the story is, is certainly not done. So we'll talk about that as well as the other details and culture that are part of that topic. As usual, you can support us in a number of ways. For a long time, you've been able to support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash historyofwesteros, where you can get bonus episodes, access to scripts and notes, and participating in these polls. You can also go to our website, historyofwesteros.com, and send a donation. We will send you links to all our bonus episodes. Or you can, if you have a Spotify anchor account, you can subscribe to us through there. That's the newest option. It just adds on to your existing Spotify bill. Five bucks a month. Get all our bonus episodes. We're in the process of uploading them one or two a week. Eventually, they'll all be there. They show up on your Spotify feed as uh, paid subscriber episodes. That five bucks a month will unlock all of them. And by the time we're done, there's going to be more than 10. I don't have a full count, but there's a lot of them. We keep adding to them, and there's more coming. So that's a great way to support us as well as getting some additional content. Thank you all. Thanks for those of you who came live. Thanks to Nina for the great notes. Check out Alley with one uh, Joey, Jesse, and Kevin, thank you very much for the music. Thanks to our engineer for the sound quality assistance. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the great maps you see behind me and our video intro. Thanks to the mods, both on Facebook and Discord. And then of course, folks, don't forget what Shea said about SDCC. If you're going to be in San Diego or especially if you're actually going to the con, reach out to us, at gmail.com or just hit us up on one of the social media places or Twitter. It's yeah, at Westeros history or at Near News not, also, or Sean at Dancing Sean.
2: Yeah, also on Discord, I have updated some of the roles and stuff like that. So if you haven't been on Discord for a while, go check out the roles channel and look at that to get. You can ba- I have it set so that you could give yourself the Crusader Kings role or the Jackbox Games role. And then when we are gaming, you can get alerts um, about yeah. it. So. It's
0: like opting in to, to receive messages about yeah. things that relate to that role. Yeah. Right? yeah. So yeah, so and there's other there.
2: other cool things in the Discord, but that is one of future because we haven't we haven't played Jackbox or Quiplash in the Discord yet. But I would like to soon.
0: Yeah, one of these days we'll pull that off. We've done obviously done Jackbox in a lot of other places. It's always yeah, a great time. Yeah, We've so we, we we streamed like
2: pretty... it and had some private chats.
0: <laughs> we will see you all next week. Or more, Valar Re-Reeks.